0: people can be very disagreeable but still have expectations of decorum or manners or things like that right like an almost like an honor aspect to it and i think some people that's a that's very important to them i mean jordan peterson clearly is is disagreeable he's willing to argue with people but he likes to be treated respect you you're literally so like afraid of like going and talking to a person who works at domino's pizza or something like having that awkward i mean it's not even awkward Having that moment where you pay them money and they give you the pizza, that you're you're choosing to, you know, spend more money just so you don't have to have the interaction. People are afraid of talking or, or, or interacting with the Uber Eats delivery person who comes to their door, leaves the food there. So many people of who I know personally, like this is the attitude they kind of have.
1: Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Jonah Davids. Jonah is an up-and-coming writer, political consultant, and has just launched a new podcast as well. You can find his podcast and newsletter at mentaldisorder.ca, where, you can expect, is a bunch of very insightful writing and now a podcast about the mental problems facing uh, Gen Z and the population at large. You'll see a lot more of that in the episode. We do begin, however, with Canadian politics. Oh, how I love Canadian politics. And that takes up around the first 40 minutes. So if you want to get to the mental disorder, then uh, 40 minutes, that's probably around the time you want to jump to. The best thing you can do to support the show is to let a friend know, either in person or online. Hopefully, you know someone who has similar interests, similar habits. And that means that if you enjoy the show, then odds are that person is going to as well and you can help them and help us at the same time. Without further ado, here's Jonah Davids.
0: So if I have it right, you grew up in Toronto, right? Uh, yes, uh, born in Montreal, but did not stay particularly long there. Uh, been in Toronto pretty much my whole life. Yeah, so uh, a question that Tyler Cowen drew my attention to
1: is... Uh, why do so many, you know, young people who are doing interesting things online come from Toronto or the Greater Toronto Area,
0: you know? And I want to ask that question to you. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I let me think about it. Well, well, one thing I know about Toronto is that it's not really—it's only recently sort of become like a great city. I mean, you could sort of say the same thing about a lot of Canada cities, right? Montreal was sort of a a bigger deal earlier on. Um, But then because of the terrorism there, more sort of, I guess, uh, businesses and people left and moved to Toronto. Like when my parents were growing up here, it was like a very quiet city, Um, not really known for being spectacular necessarily, just like, you know, a quiet place you would come and do business. So maybe part of it is that it's sort of a, a recently interesting place. And we're starting to notice more and more people from there. I personally think Toronto has this very interesting culture that there's a lot that you can really hate about it. Excuse me. There, there's a lot that you can really hate about it, but once you leave and come back, you sort of appreciate it, which is that it has this extremely hyper individualistic, hyper neutral culture, right? Almost like taking liberalism, uh, to an extreme degree where there almost is no center. Uh, It's, it's very, very difficult to feel the center other than maybe some kind of um, I don't know, commitment to civility or sort of maybe old school British kind of norms or something like that. Um, But it's a place where you can be really, really weird. You can be really, really different in public all the time and almost nobody cares there is not the same level of social pressure or social sanctions that you would find in a more tight-knit place or more tight-knit communities. Um, So I think maybe that helps explain a bit why uh, there's a lot of really cool and interesting uh, things happening in Toronto and people sort of coming out of Toronto is, um, you know, it's this pretty economically kind of vibrant place, but it has this extremely sort of individualistic culture that allows people to really express themselves in a million different directions, even if it kind of means that there's nothing particularly strong that binds people together.
1: Yeah, you go to Toronto to feel uh to feel how over history
0: truly is,
1: you know. <laughs> that that is definitely a vibe that I feel uh when I'm here.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. I think, you know, I think uh Eric Kaufman, I think he he wrote an article, I think, a while ago, about how it's like the wokest city or something like that, or it's like a city no that... way. No, there's no way it's more woke than Ottawa. I, uh, I don't believe that, <laughs> not for a second. <laughs> maybe uh, I mean I, I would agree with that. Um, I I think he's he's talking about maybe it more generally, but uh, but let's say let's say one of the wokest cities or something like that. And I don't I don't think that's quite right. I mean, it it definitely is pretty woke, but. Um, to the extent it is, I think it's more piggybacking off these these other aspects of its nature, which is just to be sort of so decentered uh, as a place that um, it's very, very easily taken over by those types. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, I do think there is something pretty unique and pretty magical and pretty special about having a place where pretty much anybody can be whatever they want to be um, in public, and most people just don't care. And I mean, that comes with, you know, the... the the cost of that, right, is is you, you have people who are super woke or whatever doing crazy things, but you also have people, you know, like Jordan Peterson coming out of Toronto, um, you know. So I I think you kind of have a lot of room for um, for craziness that you might not have in other places.
1: Right. Why, why do you think that comes about? You know, like like a long time ago. You know, I I just see this basically in history books or documentaries. Right. People people often call it Toronto the good right? Very, very Protestant uh, ethic. But I, d- does that remain? Is that is that related in some way?
0: There, there definitely is that Protestant kind of culture. And I think if you go to other Protestant places, you'll see that's there. You sort of have the, like the kind of humbleness, right? The egalitarianism, kind of tall poppy syndrome is like a big thing. Um, but... But I, I imagine a lot of it is, and I sort of connect this back to a bigger thing about what Canada is and what Canada should be, right? Like, I mean, Canada is basically founded on people trying to trade furs and make money. And I kind of think that, I mean, Vancouver kind of has that same history too. It's it's people just come to places to make money. They don't particularly care about the the historical significance or the culture or something like that. I think out of those kinds of places, sometimes you can have... Um, these kind of centerless things evolve where maybe, I mean, maybe the center is just people making money and kind of having these um, transactions with one another. And so you have to have a culture that kind of allows for strong dis- or strong disagreements and values and things like that between people to facilitate that. And of course we have the whole, you know, French, English kind of history thing going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I don't know enough about Toronto's recent history, but that would sort of be my guess is it's, you know, People, people came here looking for economic opportunity and, and not really much else. Maybe, you know, safety, civility, quietness, that kind of thing. And it's almost like the lack of a center kind of maybe made it so that anybody can kind of fit in.
1: That's interesting because, I mean, this is something that people I know, I'm sure people you know, bemoan about Toronto all the time, which is that it has less opportunity than the state's. Right, that that's that that's one of the problems, especially I think young Torontonians worry about. But do you, do you think that's? I don't know. Do you, do you, do you think that still holds? You know, like if you think someone's coming to to Toronto now, do you think it's the same kind
0: of ethos that's driving them? Uh, well, my caveat to begin with should say that I I work for people exclusively in the states, so uh, I'm I'm definitely falling under that uh, um, that that umbrella, but. Um, I would say that if if you want to work for like a major tech company or something like that, I mean, all the big companies, they have offices in Toronto, they've got places in Toronto. Um, you know, if you want, I mean, if you want to work for a bank, like if you want to have those kinds of stable, normal careers, like for sure, I do think that Canada in in general, maybe Toronto in particular, isn't always the best for entrepreneurs or, or those kinds of people. Um, but um, but yeah I think I think for most if for most like normal jobs like I don't think Toronto would be that different than a lot of other um, cities uh, in terms of things like I'm interested in like you know politics and that kind of thing um, there's just way less money to go around in part because I believe it's actually Stephen Harper who like did all these different finance laws and things like that to stop you know big donors from pouring boatloads of money into political causes and things like that which, it was kind of like a populist move on his part, but it also means you don't really have the same kind of political infrastructure in... But it's like
1: that in all... That, that's more like American ex- exceptionalism.
0: Is it? Okay. The amount... Yeah, yeah.
1: The amount that's invested in politics is really exceptional. Like, like just the quality of political operations. I, I learned this when I was visiting, or, like, I knew this about Canada for a long time, but I visited uh, the UK recently. And, yeah, the 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 British Tories, you know who've been in power for what? Uh, the British Conservatives who've been in power for what, like more than ten years, they do not have anything resembling like an American style formal like political operation. it It really is night and day. You know, like i I was hating on uh, on like Canadian politicians before this for that reason. <laughs> But th- then I went to the UK and I think, you know, may- maybe the Americans have just, they've just got it figured out.
0: Yeah. You know? That's, that's super interesting. I, well, I mean, two thoughts on that. The first is like, I know a little bit about the history of the think tank kind of movement. And I mean, my, my understanding is that in the US specifically, my, my my understanding is that you, you basically had a lot of people who were trying to, um, who, who who felt like normal academia had become so politicized on, mostly on economic issues, right? Around, so things like Keynesianism and kind of left-wing economic policies, um, really feeling like there was no kind of place for people who didn't hold those views. And so um, people with some money, they started up these think tanks and they kind of created this these alternative spaces. Um, but, you know, I mean, maybe if you kind of, just have like more of a hegemonic control or whatever of your institutions and things like that. And there's sort of less, you know, strong ideological disagreement or something like that within them, then maybe it doesn't matter as much. I mean, uh, I know British academia is, has many of the same problems that they have in Canada and America, but, um, but I'm not sure like if economically, you know, there's a lot of disagreement or something like that, or if they're, uh, I mean, I'm sure there was, you know, uh, in, in past years or whatever, but um. The the other thing I was going to say is, I think that one one thing that's very frustrating uh, about ca- Canadian political culture, and it's probably the same I guess for British political culture, is um, ba- very very few people have like a career in politics. Like there's not a lot of money, so you you tend to have people who like they work in law or they work in finance and then they do politics as their volunteer thing or something like that, um, and. On the one hand, you could look at that and you could say, okay, well, that's good because you kind of don't want like a revolving door or something like that. But on the other hand, it really locks so many people out of actually being able to participate like that much in politics because um, especially if you're, if you're trying to do like an internship or you're trying to get in the door or something like that, um, there's really like no money for you. And so I think kind of sneakily, a lot of those places, Canada, maybe the UK too, have kind of put a bit of a class ceiling on, uh, not glass ceiling, class ceiling. Uh, on politics, um, where they're kind of making it so that the, the people who are connected and the people who already kind of have money or at least have the ability to, to, to get money, um, are going to remain in power. And that is prob, I mean, is that good in the long run? I mean, it probably is at least stabilizing, but if you object to what the current class is doing, or you think that it could be improved, then, uh, it's probably, you know, not great.
1: Right. And this is, I, I think even more of a factor, in in canada right like canadian politics famously uh very hereditary mm-hmm. very much you know very much returning to the loyalist roots uh, <laughs> of, of having kind of noble families uh you know like trudeau Tr- trudeau is a wonderful example of this of course uh, i think people i think especially americans kind of like they almost focus on him specifically too much right They'll they'll say you know like look at this look at this guy who's president after um, after, or sorry, prime minister after his father was. And, and of course there are examples like this in the States, but I think like people misjudge how much of an exception Trudeau really is. He, 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 like maybe like, obviously because there aren't that many prime ministers, someone being the son of a prime minister is not that, uh, not that, not that common, but mm. seeing it, you know, seeing people, for example, MPs who are sons of MPs, basically like for Americans uh, in the audience or for, you know, non-Canadians in the audience, basically our version of representatives, seeing like representatives who are descended from representatives is, you know, very, very common occurrence. Uh, it just, just happens all of the time. And, you know, you know like you, you meet a random MP, you kind of get the vibe that like more often than not, they 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 certainly feel like a kind of hereditary hereditary class
0: yeah and i think you know from people i know as well there's so many people who work in politics uh who are in politics uh their parents you know they are work as lawyers for the government or or things like that i mean there's it definitely is is pretty insidery um which i mean as an outsider like i don't really like that but at the same time i mean maybe that's you know for the best in some other ways in terms of like clamping down on, on populism or something like that, which, you know, there is quite a lot of populism in Canada. I mean, maybe that's part of it too, is it's more elite. And so they don't quite get uh, absorbed into the actual politics in quite the same way. But, but yeah, I mean, sometimes people will like, people will say, Oh, you know, we need to go back to monarchy or something like that. And I'm like, we already have a monarchy, like the Trudeau, you know, family, like that's the monarchy, like,
1: yeah, yeah. Have you seen the Iglesias article? That's like that's like Curtis Yarvin proposals
0: just seem like the Cretian government. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, but that's that's that sounds about right. It's uh yeah, I, I I do think that if you if you like that kind of idea, then Canada really is a great uh place for it. Um and I don't know, I mean we we've definitely seen Trudeau and his government over the last couple years like govern in a very kind of, you know, sort of, uh, totalitarian way. I mean, you know, a lot of governments did for COVID and stuff like that, but, um, I, 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 I definitely think somebody could come along with a different persuasion and do things in the other direction, just in terms of cutting stuff and getting rid of stuff. I mean, I think that would be, that would be great. I don't even think it's really totalitarian, you know, if, if you're doing it to get rid of stuff instead of force people to, you know, not be allowed to go into restaurants and take flights and that kind of thing. So
1: yeah did you have hopes for Pierre?
0: Um, I do have hopes he's the only he's like the only politician <laughs> I actually like, probably uh, and the reason the reason I say that is because um he's pretty much been saying the same things and writing the same things since he was quite young, and he's i guess moderated a little bit on his libertarianism and just you know not being quite as yeah
1: yeah he's he's for the tariffs now he's (laughs) for the farmer tariffs yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so for the audience um canada is an unnecessarily nationalistic country like i've said this to americans and they don't believe me but like canada the canadian like trade policy has long viewed america the same way, like the most right-wing people in America view China, mm-hmm. uh, and has acted accordingly. <laughs> um, you you would think that like America is this this you know huge geopolitical uh, adversary by by the way that Canada treats it, but um, yeah, it, it just has like a pretty absurd number of tariffs, um, and I don't think that that kind of
0: thing should be applied at least to allies. The yeah, it's funny because we're so not nationalistic, like in terms of like. You know, other than we kind of have like the left wing nationalism, like free health. Yeah, we are, though. We are like the 100 percent of the national nationalism is like
1: anti-American nationalism. <laughs> it's like just it's just America. I mean, I, I'm not sure, you know, like ignorant Americans are kind of known for not knowing about any country other than their own. You know, like Canadians kind of only know about two countries. Yes. Um, But damn, do they know a lot about America. And uh, yeah, especially left-wing Canadians really, really hate America.
0: I I don't even think Canadians know that much about Canada. Like, uh, you know, mostly we just know about America. And then every once in a while we'll like open up the CBC or, you know, and we're like, oh, yeah, like we exist too. And we did. Yeah, there's
1: definitely an archetype of Canadian that knows like all of the Trump charges, but like none of the Trudeau Ethics Committee stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's most that's probably like most people who are uh, especially like in Ontario or or Toronto and really interested in politics. I mean, when you get outside of Ontario, the people there have much more of their own kind of local culture and things like that. And they care more about what's going on in uh, in their province. Um, But yeah, I mean, Ontario, we really just feel like we're part of America, like this (laughs) weird kind of stepchild of America or something.
1: Right, right. I mean, to, to return to the Toronto point, I do want to, I do want to register this take publicly. I think I've said, have I said this to you privately? I'm not sure, but um, I think that Toronto is the place to go if you're an American who cares about your children. Like the mm. like, this is very much uh, my family story. Uh, uh, my my parents worked in the states for some time, thought it was no place to raise children, and then came to Toronto, and and it's the story of like many people I know. So, so like that—that that kind of intergeneral generational investment, sorry, intergenerational investment—seems relatively rare in the United States. Like, like you go to Canada if you want to, you know, if you want to spend essentially like spend a lot of effort raising your children, mm. um, and the same is not true for the states. So that, that's my that's my current tr- Toronto talent take. <laughs> Although it, it changes, I don't know, this one, this one has stayed for quite a while. But like I come up with new, you know, Toronto talent takes pretty often.
0: That That's like an interesting idea. I think, you know, coming to Canada or moving to, to Toronto or something like that, like, yeah, people do do it mostly for um, a better life. Uh, but but generally, it's because it's safe. And yeah, it's 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 not a bad place to or it's a good place to. raise kids and things like that i mean there's lots of um you know there's lots of schools there's lots of restaurants the crime is is very very low so i i think that take checks out that that makes sense to me
1: yeah toronto is remarkably safe it is just i mean oh man there's a certain type of comment we're gonna get now but um you know not necessarily false comment but i don't know like i I don't think it can be reduced to you know one factor It, it is like yeah, maybe maybe it is the, the Protestant work ethic thing, you know. Um, but I think Eric Jones said, like, yeah, th- this is also a factor. Like Eric Jones said, you know, uh, on this podcast, I think if you were if you were to do the if you were to do the Protestant work ethic ethic uh, th- thing today, you would call it, you know, the Confucian work ethic. <laughs> uh, so, so that's maybe also a factor in terms of Toronto. But uh, okay, so so the main. <laughs> sorry, do you have anything uh, in response to that?
0: Um but well uh I all I all I want to say is I hope it stays that way and I think you know we just got Olivia Chow who's this you know I mean she's really sort of Olivia Layton, and her policies around crime and things like that look pretty bad in terms of like basically doing defund the police but without like explicitly defunding the police um we have not actually seen like her 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 budget on that yet but she's talked about wanting to do you know have social workers responding to crime scenes and and things like that so my hope is that it stays okay but um but yeah i i don't know that's
1: yeah yeah this election that the mayoral election is also worth talking about (laughs) because if i recall correctly
0: the conservative candidates split their votes five ways yeah yeah it was pretty, it was pretty embarrassing. I really liked Anthony Fury, who is like, you know, he was saying the right things, but then you had like, he was like two online and then you had Mark Saunders, who was like more people knew him as being the chief of police, except he like resigned, like right after, I think right as COVID started or something like that. Or maybe it was right after George Floyd died. So like not really the guy who you want, but so that, yeah. And, and then there were a couple other, people and everyone just split the votes and so it was yeah it was a big failure I think um yeah I mean we had like previously we had John Tory who like nobody really liked but he was like a good he was a good radical centrist for Toronto in the sense of like he would just do whatever the woke progressive people wanted on social issues but then he would like keep taxes low and he like didn't cut the police so you know that's probably as good as you're gonna get for like a Toronto kind of Centrist. Um, I would go back to that over probably what we're about to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, John Tory. John Tory is fascinating because he gives me hope for basically people who are virtue signaling. Uh, and, and he has a very funny history, right? He was the campaign manis- manager of, I believe, the least successful incumbent prime minister in all of Canadian
0: history. Uh, Kim Campbell. Oh, really? Uh, um, I did not know that. That's hilarious.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, you know, uh, he clearly, he clearly got a chance to reinvent himself.
0: <laughs> yeah, the uh, well, the failing, the whole failing upward thing is like very real, and. Um,
1: yeah, but he won this time, right? Like, <laughs> so he, he had a very long he had a very long term as mayor, right? So, so I don't think I I don't think that he necessarily like failed upwards. He actually won the mayoral election and did pretty well.
0: It's true, but I think I think even that speaks a bit to how Canadian or Toronto politics works. Like, I think the reason he was able to win at least the first election was just by that time he like knew so many people in the business world and in politics, not through any like success necessarily. Right. But just through being there. So he was kind of just there long enough that when his name came up and he wanted to, you know, run, people were like, Oh yeah, he's, I know that guy. He's like a good guy. You know, lots of people saying, Oh yeah. Like we all like him, you know, he's fine. And like, I think that is maybe a better proxy for how a lot of people get, uh, you know, get into power um they just kind of stick around for long enough and then you know it's like okay yeah why not sure so um very very like old boy i mean the whole the 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 big divide in conservative politics in canada for forever has just been between like the sort of old boy conservatism like the tory you know is the toryism and then yeah his name is literally tory it's it's wonderful (laughs) it's it's just wonderful it's it's it truly is what's the what's that called um nominative determinism or something like that yes that's right yeah um so that between that kind of like country you know country club and you know cigar lounge conservatism versus the the western kind of populist and to some degree you know disgruntled dad conservatism um right
1: reform reform versus you know progressive conservatives right yeah
0: yeah and i think like i mean it's it's they people now are trying to collapse that into like you know national conservatism versus freedom conservatism which i think is like an interesting i mean that's almost you know maybe more of an american kind of thing it's really it's really like natcons versus libertarians or something yeah but, but
1: like all, all canadian conservatives are natcons i'm sorry like
0: yeah the, well all canadians
1: all, all, are so nationalist or all, like canadian policy uh, uh, it, uh it's nationalist to a fault uh, Maybe was, not in terms of like immigration, but in terms of like trade, Canada, it can, Canada, I cannot comprehend how much Canadians hate trade. I just don't understand it.
0: Well, I, I was going to say every, every Canadian conservative I've met is like a NatCon and a libertarian. <laughs> like, that's like, that's kind of like uh, how it shakes out where you're like, you know, you're libertarian on some things and you're very nationalist on other things, but you know, you don't like never the twain shall meet. Like, you don't really acknowledge that. It's kind of like you have libertarian vibes, but then, yeah, when it comes to, like, trade and things like that, then suddenly it's uh, very, very different. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an an interesting, confused kind of situation. Um, But I guess my hope is that whatever kind of internal inbred elite that we do have is able to just quietly solve the problems and, you know, we continue to coast.
1: Wait, so so... I want to I want to give a meme to the audience, and I'll put this in the description, uh, or like not a meme. This is like an actual poll. This is a this is a real poll. But let me just send you let me just send you this tweet now uh, sure. that I made. Okay, this will also be in the in the description for the audience. But. Uh, similar sim- this is the the mayoral election is not a once in a lifetime phenomenon. You know, vote splitting is a part of Canadian life, both left and right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if if you look at so, so if you look at the first link in the description in the in the mentioned in the show section, you, you will see you'll see this chart that, uh, has, has conservatives winning all vote sectors. So, so, so we have federal vote intention. Uh, so basically an opinion poll, uh, which party would you vote for? Uh, for 18 to 29, 30 to 44, 45 to 59, and 60 and over. And, uh, in this graph, uh, Jonah, can you see it Uh, now? Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in this graph, you have, uh, conservatives barely winning the 60s and overs uh winning the 45s to 45 to 59s by a landslide pretty much and then uh, you have something interesting with the with the with the young people which is that fewer of them vote for the conservatives but almost all of them are like perfectly split between two left-wing parties which are uh, the liberals and the ndp and this is this is the perfect chart for Canadian politics. this is <laughs> this is just this is just brilliant.
0: <laughs> um. yeah, it no, it truly is. i I mean, I'm just all I can say looking at this is, yeah, I'm if when when it, when the right splits, then this is totally over for them because then they just get eaten by. Whatever else there is. The left, you know, the, the left split makes sense. Like I still kind of understand. I it, politically it's a bad idea. Yeah, and well, no, it it makes sense <laughs> if you're a voter and you're like you're like, I don't like the, you know, PMC-ishness of the the Liberal Party. It's you know, it's two establishments. I want to go for something more radical. So I vote NDP. Like it doesn't actually make sense in real life where they basically just vote in lockstep now because they have this agreement or whatever. But um but yeah, I don't know. Somehow it somehow it works. I I think the Green Party too, like we have 10% Green Party in 18 to 29. Like that's really Oh funny. yeah, yeah. That, that's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So well uh, I don't know. I mean, I think the con- the conservative party, like so many people on the right, re- it's kind of like the Republican Party, like so many people on the right really, really don't like the conservative party. And they don't like, they basically don't like its boundaries, I think most of all, which is it has these very kind of tight, you know, in and out, uh, you know, politically correct boundaries and things like that. I think even even people in recent uh, months have seen, like, with uh, Lesley Lewis, there was just a video of, of her where they're asking her about, you know, um, transgender uh, women in, in, uh, in prisons and things like that. And she's like, oh, like, we just have to have some, you know, fuzzy kind of compromise. We respect everybody, which is, I mean, Lesley Lewis is known for being, like, too hardline, you know, for yeah, from...
1: yeah, she she's the culture war candidate. She's like the she's like the equivalent of uh, Chris Rufo or like <laughs> Ted Cruz, right? Uh, for, yes. for the Canadian for, for the Canadian conservatives. Uh,
0: she, yeah, I think I think Leslie Lewis as the Ted Cruz of Canadian politics is that's amazing. That you should meme that. Um, yeah, I don't
1: know, like it doesn't capture the the geographic politics though, right? Like T- Ted Cruz is from Texas, that that's not like Leslie Lewis's vibe at all. She she she's like. Um yeah yeah she, she she's like uh yeah there really is no like American equivalent to this maybe like Rudy Giuliani I don't know there's no like urban but like super like cult- culturally conservative uh like all the urban conservatives are like maybe like the urban trad cats right but that's not her vibe either there's no like there's no urban Ted Cruz right in the states
0: no. it's not really a thing definitely not um and but yeah, so I mean, I think on on issues like that, a lot of people are upset that the conservatives are not coming out more, more forcefully and saying like, you know, we oppose transgenderism or, or you don't even have to say that, but you have is to that say like it. voters or is that like smart people? So that that's something that I've been trying to figure out. And I it, it could be voters, it could be smart people. Um, I I mean, my guess is that most voters don't like transgender, These, these kind of, cra- especially the craziest policies, like they don't like them. So my guess is it has mostly to do with um, trying to just to, like the media, right? Canadian media is so stacked, like the deck is so stacked against um, anyone to the right of center, you know, even to the left of center or even to the right of center left. And so my guess is they're just basically trying to say as little as possible that's offensive or that could be you know misconstrued because the moment that they do then suddenly they're gonna have a runaway like media you know uh, yeah and
1: more importantly like conservative uh conservative politicians and elites still pay attention to like left-wing media Mm -hmm. this is still like i don't know it it feels like just, just orders of magnitude behind the united states you know, like the things that American conservatives have figured out with like affective polarization and like doing a successful culture war and running against the media, you know, it, it just seems like a completely different level of technology. You know, I just like turn I used to like every time I visited America, you know, this was when I was still mainly staying in, in, in Canada. Uh, I, I would like tune into Tucker Carlson. Like that would be the that would be like the visiting America ritual. It would be like 6 p.m in my hotel room and I would just turn on Tucker Carlson tonight and witness a whole new level of political media technology, just how well it was put together, you know, like the editing, the, the, the like, you, you know, like the Tucker Carlson, like trademark, like stare into the camera. <laughs> yeah. You know, all, all of this was like, uh, you know, as like a Canadian teenager back then, you know, all of this was like, Oh my goodness. This, so uh, this is how, you did. Know, this is how someone who actually cares about politics does it, you know.
0: Yes, the and there's, I mean, there's so much to say there on the media front, like because Canada has its own, like, you know, um, I guess you could say right wing media or something like that. And there's a lot of independent media now. Um, yeah, and it's also owned by Murdoch. <laughs> it's, it, but the, the 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 issue the issue with it is kind of. Um, Hey, it's, it's it's 100% reactionary. Like it's it's all of it is just like, look at this crazy thing that this person did and like now we're going to, you know, tell you about it. And it's all I think there's a market problem too where it's it's basically just all being made for like Canadian dads who are just angry about everything. And I I think on a psychological level feel uh, they almost enjoy the anger of it more than they really want to do anything about it because it doesn't really directly affect them and so it just ends up being this kind of outrage machine that um I don't know it's 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 all freaking god like it's all gossip basically there's 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 nothing behind it that's actually intended to advance any you know particular cause because i think even even the conservatives like they don't even really know what they want exactly i mean they are just Yeah yeah
1: Americans happy. will no Americans will this is what Americans think about Fox News, right? Especially like conservative American elites. This is what they think about Fox News. You guys have no idea. You guys have no idea how good you have it, okay? Fox News is at least ideological. It might be like boomer, you know, repetitive, gimmicky ideology, but it has like a direction that it's <laughs> that it's pointing towards. Yes. The same cannot be said for like Canadian post media. Just
0: no. No. And <laughs> and and actually, the the lack of ideology is something that's really interesting. And I've thought a lot about it because, um, I mean, I, I know if t- almost anybody you talk to, you talk about ideology. They're like, oh, like ideology is bad, right? We don't want to be ideological. And there's all kinds of interesting different definitions of ideology. Like, you know, I came initially from the political psychology world. So ideology is very much about sort of like, you know, what predicts you having all these views, like your kind of inner motivation. So like, do you, you know do you want equality or do you you know prefer a hierarchical society like that kind of thing for other people it's more like it's more like a political idea so it's like okay what kind of you know items can we package together and um, in a way that will be appealing to voters but whatever view of ideology you take like you can really see what happens when you don't have it because when you don't have it it's just there's no central focus everything kind of falls apart and it's very very hard to get people to move on one issue or another because you can't really coherently link any of it together. And, you know, you can wait your whole, you can wait like years to have a meeting with a politician, walk into that politician's office or something, and they're not even on the same page with you. Like you, you, you know, you're waiting to speak forever to your conservative MP or something like that. You go in and talk to them and they're like a, you know, they're like a center left liberal who is very, very, very progressive. And you're just confused. I, I thought, you know, you were, no, I'm not. I mean, I am, I, I belong to that party. But, you know, I believe that the conservative party is all about being free to be whoever you want to be and like, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. So it's, yeah, without ideology, it just makes kind of wrangling everything even, you know, more freaking difficult.
1: Yeah, pe- people, yeah, Americans will say, you know, remember the good old days where there were like conservative Democrats and uh, liberal, liberal Republicans, and, you know, a lot of it was more, more based on kind of self-interest. It's like, that sounds awful, <laughs> you know, That like, the, the, that sounds like, you know, you're so susceptible to a lot of the political economy problems that I write about in my newsletter, you know, a lot of the... Uh, industry capture you know as Canada objectively is you know (laughs) going back to Canadian uh, tariffs and Canadian industrial policy
0: yeah Uh, and I I, I should say I really like you know your writing on polarization because it's like I agree with it like maybe for some people they they like the idea of you resolve issues sort of internally within parties and things like that and but I, I just think I mean isn't the whole point of it that these parties represent like different worldviews or different ideas or something, or maybe even different strategies to accomplish the same objective. But if uh, otherwise, I mean, you don't even really know what you're voting for. I think that the better world is one in which people at least kind of know they have a choice between competing visions of the good or something like that.
1: Yeah. So we're almost 40 minutes in. (laughs) I think that when I, when I messaged you, I was like, Okay, do you want to do? Do you want to do a podcast
0: episode about mental illness? <laughs> well, I mean, we can uh, we can go in whatever direction you want. I'm I'm quite happy. I'm having a good time. Oh, I thought you
1: were going to say that you know Canadian politics is a mental illness. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Hot take. Right, right. So I think the big, I think one of the big questions that I get throughout your writing is sort of how true or like how, how real of a thing is mental illness, mm. right? How, how much of it is something that is kind of, uh, determined by, by circumstance and how much of it is kind of affected by, by perception.
0: Well, it's a difficult question to answer because, um, um, how real is mental illness? I think, I think what we mean by mental illness has changed a lot. So maybe I can kind of start start it by like like this. So, um, if you go back a number of years to let's say 1950 or something like that, people had a pretty binary distinction um, between somebody who was like mentally ill and somebody who was sane or something like that, right? So you would think about the person who. Uh, was extremely schizophrenic, um, you know, hearing voices uh, all the time, right? Can't function normally in society. Uh, You would think about people who had, you know, severe kind of um, mental retardation or things like that. Although I guess that would be a disability. Um, But even people who were maybe so depressed that they couldn't function normally in society or people who were bipolar or, you know, they used to call it manic depressive who um, would sort of go through these bouts of extreme unbearable depression you know which would cause them to be suicidal and then extreme mania where they're you know um they're just so happy and their expectations are um are so great and they would you know do crazy things like they think suddenly oh i'm a famous writer i'm going to write a novel and they write a novel and they walk up to a publishing house and they you know plop it on the desk and they say you know here's your next bestseller you know this this person having never written a word or something like that so Uh, It used to be you had those kinds of people and then sort of everybody else and everybody else would probably have, you know, what what we would now recognize as like fluctuations of those kinds of things. Right. Because they're not necessarily binary. They're kind of on a spectrum. So, you know, the person, a person who is extremely schizophrenic, a lesser version of that might be somebody who is, you know, a bit conspiratorial or sometimes they have kind of religious you know, visions or they hear, you know, but they're still pretty functional. It doesn't cause them big problems, um, in society. Right. We would think about somebody who's, um, you know, extremely manic depressive or something like that to the point where they're suicidal, but maybe in a more mild version, they're just kind of this romantic kind of, you know, poetic kind of person who has these like mood swings and things like that. Um, so I think I think back when we kind of had this very extreme, like you're either mentally ill or not kind of binary, that it was pretty easy to say, like, how real is mental illness? And um, because you could see these people are, are really mentally ill in the sense of that they have disorders, they have problems, whether it's, you know, genetic or due to their life history or, or both things. Um, but they basically cannot function properly in society. Um, versus everybody else who, you know, they have their ups and downs, they might be quite, they might have times where they're sad, or they're unhappy, or they're, um, you know, a bit loopy, but for the most part, they're, they're able to exist in society. Um, I think what you had with the kind of deinstitutionalization movement, which, you know, began in the 50s, and sort of expanded from there is you had, and and this also goes, I think, with broader changes in the culture more towards, um, you know, these new kind of new left ideas, like, more, more relativism, more kind of everything is on a spectrum, you know, which I think um, is like an is to some degree true, uh, but suddenly that idea gets collapsed, or, or not collapsed, sorry, but that idea kind of gets torn apart, and and suddenly we're viewing the person who, you know, goes through depressive bouts now and again as being having just a less extreme version of the same illness as somebody who literally cannot get out of bed because they're so sad, and then over time um you have mental health awareness so suddenly right because the number of people who are mentally ill is expanding and and now we have more of these like edge cases cases and things right where you know maybe you have a worker who under normal circumstances is totally fine but every once in a while they have a manic depressive episode and then they need to be out of the job for you know a couple weeks or something to recover I think over time, people start to view those people more and more as like, well, this person could be a regular person, could work regularly if we just gave them the right supports, Uh, which in some cases is true. In some cases, maybe it's it's an overreach. Um, But you end up with kind of um, this new idea of mental health awareness, where more and more of those people were classifying as saying they have a mental health condition. You know, there's more and more diagnosis. Drug companies obviously have, you know, much to do with that. Um, but there's basically an expansion. And I think what we're sort of seeing today, and the reason why we now even have questions like, you know, how, how real or how true is mental illness or something like that, is we've just really, we've, we've, we've made it such a spectrum. And we've decided to sort of treat everybody kind of, in some sense, almost the same on, you know, on that spectrum, that it's very, very hard for us to, to look at some, you know, kid who's saying, Oh, I, I have anxiety, and that's a mental illness, and I need all these accommodations, and and not to kind of, you know, be like, well, you know, are you sure? Or are you, you know, are you just kind of, have you bought into some, you know, bad idea about like your own feelings?
1: Right. So, I don't know, in terms of the political history, was it something like the people who were, or like the people or the relatives of people who were suffering from severe mental illness, you know, something like schizophrenia? was it them who wanted to kind of destigmatize and normalize and reduce the social pressure on those people? Or was it kind of coming from the other end, right? Like people who had more minor cases uh, who wanted to kind of loop into that larger system.
0: Um, so I've read a bit that John Hirschauer has written on this. Um, and I think I think it's more along the lines of, so, so for any mental illness or, I mean, any illness in general, actually, kind of anything that's on a spectrum, you always have these edge cases. So um, if you imagine like a home for people who are uh, severely mentally ill, right, like an institution, um, in that home, there's going to be a range of people with, you know, schizophrenia. Let's just pretend for, you know, this example, they're all schizophrenic. There's going to be the most schizophrenic guy who literally is, you know, freaking out all the time. He's paranoid. He's definitely, you know, could not ever be in society because he would, you know, run into the streets or he would, um, you know, attack or hurt himself or something like that. And then there's like the least schizophrenic guy in that who probably, you know, with a lot of support, a lot of help, he could probably live in society if he wanted to. I mean, he would still have issues um, day to day, but like he could probably do it. So I think what ends up happening is you have those kinds of edge cases, and then you have active or not activists necessarily, but maybe they're guardians, maybe they're activists, maybe both, who kind of come and say, look, you know, it's terrible that we're treating people like this, you know, under these circumstances. We're denying them their freedom just because they have this mental illness, that's discriminatory. Um and so, you know, maybe they maybe through that uh through that example, they then get the laws changed and they get that person removed or something like that. And over time, you know, you can kind of, uh, you, you can kind of do that. But I think what also ends up happening is uh, through that example, they would then say, okay, well, the whole system actually doesn't make sense because all, you know, why should this one guy who's schizophrenic be treated any differently than these other schizophrenics? Um, and, you know, John, John Hirschauer also had this point where he, he said, you know, in the history, you would see that, Like they, you might have parents or guardians or advocates saying we need to get, you know, my son, uh, it's wrong to put people like my son in this kind of institution. We need to bring them into more of a community setting where, you know, they get to like, let's say live with other people, but they're in charge of themselves. Maybe there's social workers or counselors around, but it's not like they're a ward or something. Uh, so then that law gets passed, but then in that setting, suddenly there's going to be another advocate who comes and they say, well, you know, my son actually doesn't even need to be in the setting. We could. You know get rid of this whole thing too and so he kind of argues it's sort of an, a never-ending spiral of people being brought into more and more sort of normal situations from those kinds of institutions um
1: right well what's the motivation there
0: like, like do, is that
1: that you know they, they think that it's going to be you know that, that it's going to help this person recover or is it more like a moral justification right even if he has uh, or yeah let's, let's say yeah even if he has these kind of symptoms forever uh he should still be given the opportunity to be in this circumstance
0: um so i think historically there were i'm not i'm not i don't know a lot about it but i think historically there were you know abuses in those kinds of places so that could explain some of it for sure like right. people you know not being treated well i mean i'm i'm sure you can imagine how like a government agency you know in 1950 tasked to deal with people you know who had like very very bad psychotic illnesses might you could sort of imagine how that could spiral out of control pretty quickly. I mean, I've heard many horror stories about even basic things today, like, you know, child protective services or um, what's it called? You know, basically places where orphans live after they're, uh, I don't know, after they become emancipated or something like that. So, uh, or sorry, no, when they're teenagers. So I, you know, you can imagine how those things would, would kind of, you know, uh, degenerate. Um so so I think that's one possibility. I think I think the, the 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 idea of, you know, wanting the best for somebody you care about, I think could of course be motivating and and definitely, you know, I mean if you had a son who's schizophrenic, a lot of the time you grow up seeing that person as a normal person and it's only when they're a teenager or young adult do they, you know, uh have this onset of this illness and So I I could certainly imagine a lot of people basically saying like, I don't want my kid to be in this, but this is all I can afford. So maybe I have to do some kind of, you know, make some noise around this to get them into a better setting or something like that. Um, But I also believe some of it is kind of a moral political kind of idea based around the idea that uh, it's kind of like in special education, like least restrictive environment. Um, I think that was under the Americans with Disabilities Act or something where, you know, there's this idea, which is like, Coercion is bad. Restriction is bad, no matter you know the reason. And so we should basically try and put people in environments that are as minimally restrictive and coercive as possible. So you can kind of ride that uh, idea and and use it to you know push a lot of I think changes to people who because they cannot necessarily like you know govern themselves or handle themselves properly you know must in some sense be coerced.
1: Yeah, I think that. In general, there's this leaning, there's this movement away, not just in terms of uh, mental illness, but in terms of just broader society of uh, moving away from the idea that some constraints on people are good, right? Mm-hmm. So some constraints on it, like the libertarian version of this is like, you know, individual freedom. Uh, the, the left wing version of this is kind of like civil rights. But that you know you should we should have civil rights for this the disabled we should have civil rights for for including the mentally disabled, uh, and the idea that someone could be better off with less freedom or better off with let's say less cho- less cho- fewer choices, uh, th- this idea is kind of anathema in the current day, right? It, it, it's funnily anath- anathema to know, both parties in, for, for like almost completely different reasons. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think it's something that, you know, people on the, well, on, on both sides of the political spectrum are sort of starting to refigure out because um, even the, even the original, you know, thinkers of liberalism, who, you know, wrote about the value of freedom and things like that, like, they did not think that people who are severely mentally ill should have, you know, unlimited freedom or something like that. Um, You know, John, John Stuart Mill, when he was, uh, you know, writing, I think, on liberty or something, like, he adds that as a caveat, right? He says, like, people who cannot basically take care of themselves or govern themselves, like, they should not be given total freedom, because, you know, if somebody is suicidal, and their act of freedom is to, you know, kill themselves. I mean, that's not freedom, like, what kind of freedom is that? Right. And I mean, I think I think morally and ethically, even that example is quite interesting, because I I can see also the kind of argument which says, like, look, at the end of the day, people should be in charge of every decision about themselves, some people will make bad decisions. That's true. Even for them, like objectively, they will just because people can be bad and make bad decisions, but it's not anybody else's place to stop them. And I guess I would say that I used to really like that idea. But recently, I've just sort of started asking, like, I, I mean, is that even, you know, A, is that freedom? And B, is that compassion? Like, is that really in that person's best interest? I think increasingly, you know, as these scenarios play out in our streets and in our hospitals and things like that, we kind of realize, like, actually, no. Like unlimited freedom is not compassion, and it's not even really freedom.
1: Right, um, right. So, so what have we learned in terms of uh, genetic predispositions to mental illness? What have we learned in terms of how how, how kind of determinative these things are?
0: So. I believe so th- this is like this is like a huge topic of controversy I think needlessly like within a lot of like the psychiatric community and especially the there's this whole uh, I- I'm not sure you're familiar with like the whole anti-psychiatry community which is vaguely yeah explain that for the audience yeah so 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 anti-psychiatry is this movement that started I mean kind of in the 50s and and I think really took off in the between then and the 70s and it was basically reacting to the psychiatric institutions of that time, which you know were quite coercive, and um, you had people like Foucault writing, you know, about um, how like psychiatrists, uh, you know, abuse their authority to you know deem people who go against society as mentally ill and lock them up and things like that. And you had Thomas Szasz, who uh, wrote lots of books. The most famous is the Myth of Mental Illness where he kind of has this libertarian, you know, criticism against psychiatry. Um, at the time, I think it was definitely well warranted because like at the time, you know, I mean, they were locking people up for being gay and things like that in mental institutions. There really was very, very little oversight. Um, and it was, I mean, it was very much seen as the epitome of kind of statist, you know, control over human bodies and, and people's lives and things like that. But um, but but sort of since then it's I I think become this so anti psychiatry sort of since then has become very focused on like criticizing you know the use of um, uh, psycho medication? yeah medication and kind of the the I don't know I, I hate to use the word but the commodification of uh, mental health and psychiatric treatment and all these things so there's a lot there's lots of of um, writers and public speakers and and things like that too uh would kind of identify with that anti-psychiatry label um part of the reason that i disagree with them is i think that uh, i mean it's a bit like the problem that the right has where it's just it's, it's against something it's not really for anything and uh so you know they're very very against mainstream psychiatry they're against medication um they're against institutionalization all these things but when you actually look at what they're for i mean they kind of like they kind of tread on this very weird epistemic grounds where you know sometimes there are these people who are sort of like moderate psychiatrists, other times there are people who will be like, I can hear voices, and like that's totally cool. The voices are real, you guys should just respect <laughs> the voices um which like i'm not even i mean I'm not even like that against that you know person necessarily believing that I mean we entertain a lot of delusion in our current society already but 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 to my point i don't I don't see it as very coherent or um. But anyway, what? what or can you remind me why I brought it up initially?
1: <laughs> right, we were talking about we were we were talking about uh, how much uh, we were talking about the per- political valence of you know kind kind of individual liberty, right. or of kind of uh, the idea that people are not able to control themselves, or some people are not able to control themselves,
0: right? So uh, yeah, you right. Yeah, sorry, so go on. Um, Okay, well, to, to pick up to pick up from there, um, you you did so you did you did have in kind of the fifties and and in, into the seventies stuff like that. Like politically, the, the the right was actually the one. You know, I mean, it, it, well, I guess it was right. Ayn Rand, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you you had you had kind of on the right this libertarian criticism of a lot of these government institutions and. Um, you know, John F. Kennedy, right, did institutionalization, but so did Ronald Reagan. And um, I don't know. So, yeah, it was, I guess it was sort of bipartisan, but it was very much driven by like libertarian left or right concerns, kind of, you know, whatever, uh, whatever you might fall into. Um, and I think, I mean, since then, oh, no, now I remember we were talking, we were talking about the genetics, the genetics of it. And that's right. why I brought up the anti-psychiatry. So, so a lot of people in the anti-psychiatry community have basically disavowed any genetic explanation of this stuff and they'll point to all kinds of studies and they'll repeat all kinds of fallacies like, oh, like find me the depression gene, right? So really, really dumb stuff that I think, I mean, in, in part because a lot of them kind of want to tie it into the real reason people are mentally ill is because you know they grew up in poverty or something like that and they um, you know, were victims of some kind of you know, neoliberal you know, system or something like that. So I mean, I'm not like, again, I'm not saying we should never entertain those ideas or whatever, but I just think if you're saying genetics has no role to play or like, isn't a good way of explaining this, then I, you know, I fundamentally uh, disagree and have a harder time taking you seriously. But some, some mental illnesses are definitely more genetic than others. And so we can see like, you know, schizophrenia, for example, is very, very genetic. Um, uh, or I guess I should say sorry. Very very heritable. I believe it's like fifty percent heritable or something like that. Um, and uh, more extreme illnesses, you know, like bipolar disorder, as well as personality disorders. I think, by the way, like psychop, um, you know, antisocial personality disorder and that kind of thing. Like these are quite heritable. When you get down to anxiety and depression and things like that, it, it goes down a bit. But but over the, the overall kind of loading of all this stuff is quite high. So if you have one mental illness uh, you know, you might pass down to your kid, like a different mental illness. So, you know, you might have depression, your kid ends up getting ADHD or something like that. Um, and it kind of continues from there. So, uh, I do think genetics is a very important and underrated kind of aspect of this because so much of the discussion of mental illness in a, um, kind of political, you know, or even sort of, like academic environment is, is very much about um, you know, all these sort of risk factors and things like that. So like SES correlates, you know, family structure correlates, all the stuff. I don't doubt that in individual cases, each of those things can have an effect. But if we're not willing to talk about, you know, mental illness as a hereditary phenomenon, then I think it becomes much more difficult to actually like deal with the problem and, and probably treat people as well. Um because maybe the best treatments in the long run will turn out to be genetic in nature.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Embryo selection, uh, genetic engineering, there, there, there's very much, you know, technologies that you can use without, you know, you know, social control, right. This is not the, this is not the 1800s.
0: Yeah. I, I actually have, um, uh, I'm going to start a podcast soon for, for mental disorder. And one of the first episodes is with Ives Parr and, he and I are going to be talking about that because he's Ives has written a lot on you know, genetic enhancement and embryo selection. And I, I actually see that as you know one of the most practical and probably useful ways to, to fight you know, mental illness in the long term uh, in the sense of once we recognize that a lot of this is genetic, then we should be thinking, okay, well, then how can we make it so that people are having you know, kids that are less predisposed to this? uh, through, you know, totally non-coercive methods.
1: Right. And even possibly just by voluntary choice, right? You,
0: you give people the
1: option. You don't even need to, you know, it's not like you need to give them like a tax credit or something, you know, people will just naturally want to, uh, you know, protect their children from mental illness.
0: Yeah. And it's, uh, to me, I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic about that side of things because, um, I don't know the kind of, social science like around mental health and things like that i mean there's a whole you know world of like global mental health social science and all the stuff and it's kind of all the normal public health stuff you'd expect like i i don't know oh no i yeah <laughs> i like i'm not i'm not saying if you made people you know richer that um they wouldn't feel better and i i, I think we should make people richer in general you Wait, know? is that
1: the trend line i thought it was the opposite like in poorer countries they're happier
0: um I think it's, I think it depends. Like, I think, I think a lot of the, the happiness, um, the happiness to mental illness thing is, or sorry, not the, the, the happiness, well, okay. Happiness to wealth and mental illness to wealth are a bit different, but I think, I think in general, if you're in a richer country, you probably are happier, but I think, I think probably there's a certain point at which it almost becomes too much, Maybe social comparison you know plays a role in that i'm I'm pretty interested in social comparison as like a driver of unhappiness um, because I think so I think a lot of modern unhappiness can be explained by like social comparison and people just comparing themselves to you know people they see online and like the the competition for who you're against is so much you know bigger it, it, you can't just be like the best athlete in your town now, right you're now competing against like every athlete ever so I think stuff like that you know. But like I do, I do think there's kind of an a, a neoliberal. Do, do we
1: have any results to believe that that's like? How has that been studied?
0: Um, I mean, I've I've read social comparison studies that look at like you know people in like individual towns and things like that, and but and, and as well, I think within the age of social media and like looking at that as an effect. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, you know, it's, it's always correlation causation. So maybe people who, I mean, maybe it's like the people who just don't compare to other people, you know, feel better. And, and, but it goes the other way where the reason they, you know, don't compare themselves to other people is because they already feel good. Like that could definitely be a a thing too.
1: Right, right. So speaking of social media, uh, you know, one of I think at least the most well-known, I'm not sure how well she respected she is academically, but at least publicly well-known researchers in terms of generational differences and in terms of mental illness is, uh, is Jean Twenge, which she wrote this book, Igen. She wrote another book, I think, comparing, comparing the generations, which I haven't read yet, but, uh, she points out a a number of trends in, uh, in Zoomer mental illness and uh, she points at helicopter parenting, she points at uh, at uh, social media, she points at possibly uh, like a moral panic around child kidnappings. Do you think those are credible explanations for increasing rates of uh, anxiety or depression? Or do you think that it's, you know, it's something else?
0: It's, it's like an interesting question. I think... Um because I'm, I'm, I'm often skeptical of, you know, these environmental explanations, but if it's a thing that everybody's doing, right. And it's having this, you know, big impact then it can make a big difference. Um, there's, I, I think it was, th- there's, there's a, a Twitter, what do we call them? Twitterer Xer now. That's <laughs> <It sounds> terrible. <laughs> there's yeah. a, 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 I'm still going to call it Twitter. <laughs> that there's a, um, there's, there's a, a poster named, uh, just named Pete, I think, and he, I think he's from the UK. He he does a lot of these really long, elaborate threads on these kind of phenomena that I, I definitely recommend following him. Um, I'll send you his uh, his handle or whatever. But um, he he had a good thread where he was kind of pointing out a lot of these behaviors are are also just the rise of people like living in cities more. You know, like people worried about you know, people kidnapping their kids, well, maybe part of that is because it actually has gotten, you know, less safe over time and things like that. And people are living in more urban environments than than previously. Um, so maybe some of that is, is is confounded by like more people living in, in urban environments or something like that, where maybe that, I mean, we, we actually know that people who do live in cities versus, you know, the country are like less mentally healthy and tend to have higher rates of other mental illnesses. So like maybe there's something to that idea as well. Um, I, I do kind of feel that the millennial generation and you know, our generation, Gen Z, I mean, I feel like we have a huge delayed adolescence problem and I feel like maybe the helicopter parenting, you know, kind of stuff is part of that. Um, But I think it goes beyond that where I just, I don't know. I see millennials and adolescents, you know, for a number of reasons, like, you know, doing more school, doing more and more degrees, getting more and more master's degrees and, you know, not having kids, like having just trouble kind of, you know, forming normal relationships, whether it's like friendships or or romantic relationships. Um, I think there's a lot there that could explain why, you know, the younger generations in particular are like pretty unhappy. Because if you just look at their lives, I mean, I feel like so many I should say so many millennials and Gen Z I know are like basically still kids, even as they're, you know, entering their, their mid twenties to sometimes late thirties. And I think that just must be a huge shift from like Gen X or boomers who, uh, by those ages were, I don't know, living more kind of normal adult lives.
1: Yeah. I think the emphasis on higher education has just been disastrous. Like, in my view, like most people even doing like master's degrees they're not really contribute anything to research most of the time, it would just be so much better if they just got a, just got a normal job. And you know, this focus, right. It also shifts, it it creates, you know, it creates the slow life strategy. It creates the shift into basically um, it's almost like Peter, Peter Thiel has this term, like indefinite optimism, versus uh definite optimism right definite optimism Mm. Uh, he talks about it more in a kind of macroeconomic sense in terms of definite optimism being surrounding technologies or companies that you know are certain to be achieved whereas indefinite optimism is just you know vague vibes of things are probably going to get better in the future with no real explanation or justification for it
0: yeah uh I mean, personally, I look like, when I meet people like that, I find it really weird, but that I kind of remember, like, in some sense, they've been brainwashed, (laughs) like, so I I try not to be too hard on them. But, you know, I, um, I I think it's also, I think it's particularly bad, too, in some European countries. I mean, I, I had this, um, this friend who, who came to visit me, and he was, uh, from a, I I won't say where, because I don't want to, you know, in case he listens to this, but, um... But he, he's from a European country, like an EU country, and he was trying to figure out, you know, what he should do for his third master's degree. Uh, <laughs> now, unlike unlike the normal story of this, he wasn't doing a master's degree in education or public health or something. He was doing like a third master's degree in like data science or something like, you know, something at least a bit. I mean, maybe data science today is is going the way of those things. I don't know, but, but he was doing it. And, you know, he had skills. He was a programmer. He could do all kinds of stuff, but he was, you know, can, he, he just wanted to keep doing master's degrees. And I said to him, like, why are you doing a third master's degree? Like you have the skills. You could probably get hired at any company. Like, why are you, why do you keep doing this? And he said, Oh, like, I just don't really, I'm not ready for a career yet. You know, like I don't really want to choose anything. I just want to kind of keep floating around and, um, you know, you do a master's degree in one place, you get to live there for a year. The government, you know, makes it cheap for you to live there. And it's it's super cheap anyway in the EU. So like, why does it matter? Right. I'll just, uh, basically I'm, I'm continuously paying for an extended vacation while I, I rack up these degrees. And I mean, I just sort of thought, to, like thought to myself, I mean, isn't there a point at which one just sort of says, okay, it's time to start my life and, you know, make money, move up, like kind of build something. But I think for... For a lot of people, they just don't want to do that because they're like, "Look, I can just basically continue. that I can basically continue to have fun, continue to learn stuff, you know, meet new people, go to parties, travel the world, and then, you know, when I'm 30, then like I'll get a job. And um, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe we're just the weird ones. Like maybe we should actually be acclimatizing to their new norm. Maybe their new norm is better. But it to me, it all just seems like this massive waste of, of time and money. Um, and I don't know, I mean, energy, but uh... yeah,
1: I mean, you can look at this. You can look at this economically, right? The 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 return on investment on additional degrees is just yeah. I mean, like in the case of a third master's degree, like almost certainly negative. Um, and in the case of you know, in the case of one master's degree, on average, negative, right? So 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 you're in the situation where yeah, where, where you know there. Are little economic constraints, maybe more so in the United States, but you still see some people doing it. Uh, this like trend of people saying like, I'm not, I, I'm not ready for it. That that seems very, uh, that seems like the crux of what's happening there. Where, I don't know, like, have you ever had that sentiment in my life? I, I've never had that sentiment <laughs> in my life.
0: Uh, well, one of the first, one of the very early early lessons that I learned or, One of the earliest lessons that I learned in my life is I learned, you know, you should always face your fears. Like if you're afraid of something, you should go through it and do it. Because if you don't do that, then you'll just continue to be afraid of it. So, you know, when I feel like I'm not ready for something, or, you know, I need to wait more time, I just try and be like, no, like, if I if I can do it, and the only reason I'm not doing it is because I feel weird, then I probably should just do it. And get over that. So Now, you know, maybe part of it is, I think, you know, to go back to the Protestant work ethic, I think some people really like work, some people really like building, contributing, other people, they might still be competent, but they really are more enjoyers of life, you know, they're the ones who just kind of want to float around and do stuff. But But like, like your example, it's not like it's always easy, right? I know
1: people Yeah, I know people doing like computer science, PhDs or master's degrees. And I say, you know, like you You'd have a much easier career if you were just doing uh, if you're just doing industry, but, yeah. but that's not what they choose. I, for some, there, there's something about the academic setting. Maybe it's familiarity.
0: Yeah, it, no, it totally is. And you know, I know people who um, I know people who are very very smart and they want to have a career doing research and things like that, which is sort of what I would say. You know, I do. And, but they're, they're afraid of leaving academia because they sort of say, look, I need my structure. I need people to tell me what to do, what to research. Like, I like the idea of, you know, there's always a, uh, there's always an advisor. There's always a process, right? There's always a, like, um, a reviewer for my articles. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of like, I mean, okay, if that's really what you think, then fine. But I feel like you're kind of trapped in your own mental box there and, but, but, you know, all, all of that to say, like, I think we would do much better and we'd probably all be happier if we had a culture that kind of pushed people out of that mode of thinking and more into the mode of, you know, you got to take responsibility and become, you know, your own person. Not that it's, I mean, to your point, sometimes it actually is easier. I, I, I definitely think, like, my life would be harder if I stayed in academia or something like that. Um, but... But just because, like, it's kind of the right thing to do is to start your own projects, to build your own life, and to, I don't know, just not kind of meander. I mean, and when I look at those people, a lot of the time, I don't think they're, I mean, they they are happy in the sense of they experience a lot of pleasure in their lives and things like that. But um, I think they're, I mean, I would argue they're just sort of mistaken about, like, what a good life looks like and what, you know, real happiness is or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think that... The trend is that it's more driven. It's, it's not even, uh, we, we're talking about this like it's some kind of, you know, economic calculation, but I really don't think it is. It is very much instinctive. Yes. And, and the instinct is wrong in this case, right? And the instinct wasn't always wrong. Uh, so, 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 like, why, why is that, right? Was it, was it a kind of cultural change? Did people, you know, did, did people just expect you to work much sooner uh, previously? Or, or mm-hmm. you know, it, is that the direction of causation or is it the other way around?
0: yeah I I think with universities you're, you're totally right it's very instinctive for people. I think the the change in you know degrees from being a thing that only some people got to like everybody gets them and the push right to get more and more people to go to college because of the idea that like the degree is like what confers the skills which you know for some subjects is probably true but probably not you know all of them and certainly not I mean in today's day and age it doesn't even really make sense for most of them. Um, so I do think you had that kind of push and I mean, once, once you're kind of in that system, I think the system, if you are a bright person or something like that, then there is a lot of incentive to stay because people are promising you these opportunities and, you know, there is this community and things like that. So, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe the system is taking a lot of those people and just kind of keeping them hooked on. Because I guess, I guess, the, I guess, the truth of it is that for a lot of people, having a formula is super addictive, right? Like, uh, I'm not much, I'm not much of a coder, but one thing that I always enjoyed about doing coding was you kind of had a formula, right? Like you would put in stuff, you would hit it, you know, you hit enter or whatever the, you know, I used to use R, I can't remember, but 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 ev- but eventually you get the answer correct or the thing works, and you're like, yes, this feels good, right? You got this positive feeling, like there is only one right answer. And I think environments like academia or I mean, even even many modern workplaces as well, right, have been more and more gamified and things like that. And kind of, you know, they've, they've, they've sort of created this sort of corporate workplace vibe, which I think has similar kind of effects. But but uh, but for a lot of people, I think more and more there they, they are getting used to and enjoying that feeling of everything has been kind of plotted out for me. I just kind of have to sit there and, and press the buttons and there's a, you know, there's an order, there's a formula versus you having to kind of make that yourself, which is, yeah, more difficult for sure.
1: Right. Going to a topic that's maybe a little bit more niche. Uh, do you think the role of psychoanalysis is kind of uh, increased or decreased? In, in one way, you can see it increase in sort of like uh, therapy and in sort of like clinical psychology, on the, on the other hand, I think like people are looking for much more kind of systematic, you know, statistical explanations for these things. So like, which just in general has like the influence of of psychoanalysis as a field has that increased
0: or decreased? Um, hmm. So I think with within actual psychol like within you know psychiatry, it's probably almost zero at this point. Within psychology and like like clinical psychology and um, and then there are people who do you know psychoanalysis. like I do think it is still there to some degree. Um, when I took like when I took psychology classes, some you know professors I had would talk about Freud basically say, like this guy's totally discredited. He has you know nothing to add. He was pretty much wrong about everything except for you know he talked he told us about the unconscious. Then I had other professors, actually, a lot of the time professors who were European had a much more sympathetic view of Freud and they could kind of explain freud to you in a way that made more sense and um but but yeah i mean i i think if you if you if you take freud super seriously or something like that you're probably not going to be you know very successful um now can you do like psychodynamic therapy which kind of takes the psycho uh some ideas from psychoanalysis about the subconscious and and that sort of thing and can you use it as a tool within psychotherapy? Like, yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of people do. So there's still, you know, a lot of people who are doing therapy around those ideas, right? Around trying to um, get at what people really sort of feel subconsciously, talking about it, ego, super ego, and, and those kinds of sort of layers of the mind. Um, the, the thing that I find weird about psychoanalysis, and I think I think Scott Alexander put this idea forward in a post, which is... He basically said like the weird thing about it is it doesn't really seem to overlap with normal psychology, but like it still seems to be accurate in some way, right? So he uses the example of like, you know, in Freud, there's all this stuff about the mother and moms and things like that, which like I, normal psychology doesn't do a great job explaining. But then, you know, you, you look around the world and you look at what people are posting online and you're like, okay, you know, there's something there. Like he was right about that. Do we really know why? I'm not sure. Um, I, I would honest, I think, I think somebody like Freud is much more similar to like a Jordan Peterson kind of figure or something like that today where like he's using, he's using kind of the, the scientific language, but what he's doing is not really scientific. It's a lot more like poetic or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you know like the last psychiatrist? Do you know who this is? Is he the Freud of our times?
0: Um, yeah, I think, I think maybe, I mean, I think he's probably smart. He's probably smarter than Freud in a lot of ways. Oh, damn.
1: Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so his trick, and he kind of says this explicitly, is that like psychoanalysis is sort of a storytelling mode, right? Right. It's a way to communicate something that, that basically you wouldn't accept by logic, Mm. you know? and and if you're if you're basically so so he also does these like readings he, he does this, these like close readings of uh various uh texts or and and or pornography <laughs> and <laughs> he he's someone who is who's very difficult to explain so i'm just going to i'm just going to not you can skip forward a minute or something if you don't want to listen to us talk about the last psychiatrist but uh Yeah, he he basically he he says he's doing like psychoanalysis on yeah on these like texts and on on what both the both the audience and the characters are thinking, right? Right? And I think he just uses this. It's a very like it's a very like Nietzschean not not Nietzschean in like his philosophy, but like Nietzschean in terms of like. Pattern matches to how Nietzsche writes. Mm. It, it, it's a very similar style, right? It's similar to like Zarathustra, and, and that to me is like the, that to me is like the main uh, main contribution of psychoanalysis is like there, there's this new like storytelling method now, which is basically you know you you give a story and then you say like oh this is the thing that it's like supposed to mean, and it's not you know it's not a straightforward reading of the story. You go through you know multiple layers of it but it basically exp- it exposes some kind of truth about psychology that you can probably confirm through like statistical means that like no one would be willing people would have like an instinctive gut reaction to if if it was just given through statistical means mm. if that makes sense
0: yeah no that's that's quite profound actually and i think it's it's definitely true and if you read i mean freud is one of the best probably writers of all time if you read like his 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 works um uh, but it 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 makes a lot of sense. And I I think even there, like there's a big difference, I would say, between using psychoanalysis to make observations about, you know, one kind of individual or one individual versus about, you know, a broader group. Because like, you know, there's kind of this um I don't know what the term is, I guess I don't know, but there's there's a there's a thing people do, especially if they, you know, study psychology or something where they'll like go and psychoanalyze people, right? And yes, right? yes. And the, many such cases. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's really fun to do. Like it's super, p- people don't usually like it, but you know, you basically, you explain, you, you listen to somebody's problem or something or they're like, and then you explain to them, well, actually, you know, the reason that you're having this conflict with in your dating life is because your mother didn't, you know, love you enough or something like that. And I mean, we, we we've basically taken the word psychoanalysis to kind of mean you know, when people do that in this day and age. Right. So provide some kind of like psychological, uh, explanation for this weird behavior that is, you know, today it's now palatable to that person because you've used this kind of lingo, right. Or something like that. Um, so I I like I actually right, like but that, that idea. that's
1: because it, in a in a like very ironic way, you know, in a way that's very much a sign of our times. Like that explanation is better than the kind of intrinsic free will explanation, right? Yes, like like it's kind of more palatable to say, you know, you know, I'm just driven by you know my desire to, uh, you know, that, that, that someone is is driven by like the desire to have sex with their mother instead of you know. It, instead of having actual agency in the decision that that's actually like the more than the more palatable version.
0: Yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely is. I think. Um, And the, the, yeah, I mean, no, it's a great, it's a great point. I think the interesting thing becomes then, can you apply that to groups or can you make general observations? Right. And so I think like with Freud, like, when people, you know, try and test these like Freudian ideas, I guess, in a more experimental setting, which I mean, I'm sure somebody did, but the truth is I, I, I don't really, I, I doubt that Freud was refuted like experimentally or something. Not, not that he ever really established himself that way, but, um, but I, I think a lot of the stuff doesn't, you know, doesn't always pan out, but then when you, you meet people and you talk to them, it seems very self-evident, right? That people have these kinds of issues and complexes and things like that. Um, Freud himself had this this one book that I I really really um, enjoyed uh, called I believe it's um, I believe it's Civilization and Its Discontents or so, so something like that. There's another book by Foucault with like a very similar name, so I get them confused. Um, but he he had this this kind of longer form um, uh, argument in that book where he basically argues that all of civilization is, is basically built on repressing people's natural urges and instincts. Uh, And I mean, he talks specifically about sexual kind of urges and instincts, which from what I gather, Freud used the term sexual, like quite broadly to kind of mean any kind of pleasure or like pleasurable kind of feeling in general. But, but his basic argument is, is like people, Uh, you know, in early civilization, you know, you can imagine like the sort of Rousseauian, like anarchist kind of uh, early times, like anybody could fulfill their pleasure at any time, right? So you could go take whatever you want, do whatever you want. It's all there's no law, there's no order, you can be absolutely free. And he argues that sort of like the story of civilization is over time, people figured out how to channel those, you know, energies towards pleasure into like building something that's more sustainable. And, Um, you know, so uh, instead of over time, right, like the pleasure drive to, you know, have sex with whoever you want gets channeled into like marriage or something. And so then people, you know, are able to uh, have to worry less about that particular urge, and then they can focus more on other things. And he kind of argues like that over time, as this continues, we have we end up with a state like today where people even though they feel quite free to express whatever, you know, urges they want are actually quite constrained by society and civilization. And that's why sort of everybody is sort of, you know, as he says, it sort of unhappy uh, is because all the structures that we've built around us to survive are kind of based on us channeling all of that, you know, sort of powerful energy inside of us towards these kind of higher goods. And that's also why there's this urge to then like rebel and overthrow things. Um which I think, you know, so that's an example of doing kind of a psychoanalysis of society or something like that, right? And I, I kind of see, like, I kind of like that explanation. I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't, you know, I'm not sure how you would test it necessarily, but I, again, it's a good explanation. I think it can make people, uh, you know, maybe maybe the, the purpose of it is to make people who feel constrained by society, who feel constrained in their urges, right, which is kind of what Freud was dealing with at the time, um, make people feel like there's something noble in that, right? Like you constrain your urges for the good of civilization. Um, So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I think psychoanalysis is probably underrated in the current era, but um, what we replaced it with like experimental psychology is, is still probably better.
1: Right. Right. So, so you have this article on, on, on loneliness on, uh, is loneliness uh, a public health problem? The, the the funny thing about loneliness is that it's almost the opposite of a public health problem <laughs> uh, it's and by that I mean like you know th- theoretically like there shouldn't be any loneliness right like the lonely the lonely people should just meet each other and you know that solved the problem mm. but but of course that's not what, what happens in practice right so, so like theoretically it should be something that like is completely a self, like a self-sorting thing, right? You, you would imagine that if someone is like lonely enough to consider it a severe problem, then they're just going to, you know, they're, they're, they're going to go out and relieve themselves of this loneliness. Um, but, but this doesn't happen. So <laughs> may, maybe like the, the, this is kind of like too obvious, but like, like why, why doesn't it happen?
0: I like so that's where I want to start. Yeah, it makes me think, you know, some, sometimes I think like we should only do like economics should be the only social science or something, because I just I just occurred to me like loneliness is a coordination problem. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah,
1: I, economics, you know, economics is a wonderful field because in any area, it will either give you a, a very close to correct answer, or it will give you the exact opposite of the correct answer. You, you just have to notice which one it is.
0: Yeah. And, um, so, so yes, yeah, so I agree with you. It's not a public health problem. Um, and why are people lonely? So I think, I think here you can start to bring in some of the sort of neoliberalism bad, uh, you know i don't know what to call it paste or something cuz people oh yes
1: perfect <laughs> we're, we're we're getting all of the we're getting all parts of the from the new world audience at this point we're <laughs> we're, fi- we're filling the bingo
0: yes this is this is for the neoliberalism bad people um well i i think on sort of underneath all of politics you have these really really big level trends which i would call um i would basically call societal like efficiency and that's economic efficiency. That's people, you know, meeting and, and marrying people who are more similar to them, um, in a variety of ways. You have people who are able to live where they want to live, work where they want to work. Like you basically have people getting sorted, um, into, you know, it will sorted in a way that like a hundred years ago would have seemed, you know, crazy and implausible. And, and uh, so I think, that and I, there there is some you know research that kind of supports this idea that uh that kind of you know neoliberalism paced uh you know societal change has made people lonelier because you used to basically be trapped in like your town right or your area uh wherever you lived you were you were kind of like stuck there unless maybe you were super wealthy or, or something like that or you escaped to the town next you know nearby and uh, as a result people you know led these lives where they did not really have to think very hard about making friends or finding a wife or like everything was just sort of there for you and um, in in those kinds of 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 places I mean it's not coercion exactly but it's sort of like a lack a lack of option basically I think makes everybody commit uh, to who's around them and the problem is that, uh, or I shouldn't say the problem, but once once people are able to move to places that you know fit them better, um, so maybe there's you know people who are doing like maybe you are you really don't like the cold, so you move somewhere sunnier, uh, or you you know live in a small town and the people there are small minded, and you want to be a you know filmmaker or you're very artistic, so you move to like Hollywood or something. I don't know, but but once you once people can move around and select into better and better places, then Um, over time, a lot of those, you know, societal kind of bonds break apart. And I think what you, what you end up getting is increasing, you know, atomization, individuality. And that's been a trend for quite a long time. Like you can see, there's a study that I saw that looked at that, I think since 1971 in a couple countries, you know, that's been occurring in a couple countries can explain some of the loneliness. Um, I think you add social media on top of that. And then, of course, COVID on top of that. And I think that now you're, you know, really starting to see the problem um, of kind of everybody being in their own world all the time. And to your point, you know, if you live in a big city or something, there's, there's thousands of people who would probably love to be your friend. But most people are not even trying to, to make those friends because they've almost lost the, I don't know, lost the muscle. Um, which maybe you have to, you know, to get you have to be trying or be exposed to friendship over and over again or something. But so many people basically just don't even try. Which personally I think is kind of sad. And I, I think if you are a lonely person, you know, it's not, it's not super du- difficult to to make new friends. But, um, but yeah, most people, most people don't, and it's it's very sad.
1: Maybe I'm looking for something that doesn't exist here. Which is, like, a causal mechanism for why this happened. Like, to me, like, none of that answer is, like... There are kind of, like, trends, and I don't even... And I'm not even sure I disagree with those trends. But the question I want to ask is, like... So why aren't they just going out and making friends? And, like, nothing... Like maybe, maybe there's some like correlational evidence that there's some kind of like cause there. Right. But I actually don't like, I I don't understand at all why that causes that to happen.
0: So yeah, let me let me see if I can answer. So, um, if, okay. So, so to start, think about, um, think about the, the normal dad. Okay. Uh, like normal dads don't have very many friends. Would you agree with that?
1: Uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> let, let, let's say I do. Okay. Okay.
0: Well, uh, a lot of, a lot of normal dads like don't have that many friends, you know, in part cause they're, you know, uh, let's say they're still married. They're focused on their family or something and their wife, is, you know, they're spending most of the time with their wife and their kids or something, you know, people move around different jobs, different places. They lose contact. Like, you know, they might have a couple buddies or something, but, um, but I don't think it's too – I think it's it's pretty common to see, you know, older men in particular, you know, with not a lot of friends. And I think it's not even necessarily – in that case, it's not even necessarily through, like, a fault of their own. But it's just, like, you know, those kinds of sort of – I mean, they're, they're focused on other things. People move around. They are not, you know, all going to the same bar anymore or something like that. I mean, people seem to do that less. They go less to sort of third places. They hang out more at home. And – so I think, you know, even if you look at just at that micro example of, you know, somebody who, in, a, in other respects, maybe has a lot of their life worked out, you can kind of see like how people just end up, you know, by focusing on themselves and maybe the people very close to them end up not making friends. I think when you look at like younger generations, like millennial and Gen Z, um, there I, I I kind of see like, you know... you you can see that people are not like going to clubs as much people are uh, you know, not going out to eat as much. I mean, there's kind of a whole sort of stay at home, which I guess, you know, makes a bit of sense considering home is much more fun than it used to be. Um, But yeah, I I think maybe dating apps have, you know, played a part in that or something like that. Cause it used to be people would go to clubs to meet other, you know, single people and things like that. And that's like less of a thing now, although it still is a thing. Um, but my, my thinking basically is just that society has gotten much more individualized. People have gotten much more antisocial and, you know, sort of through no fault of any particular person on their own, but we've all just gotten, I guess, worse at being friends with each other. Um, I mean, I, I'm thinking even now about, you know, the wall street journal had like this article from, I think it was last year or something about this you know, this kid who's like, he's gone to university, he's in his first year, he's like not enjoying it. And he's, you know, he talks about how he has trouble making friends. Nobody really wants to, you know, nobody's like doing anything interesting. So he just kind of stays in his dorm and plays video games. Um, I think a lot of people kind of end up in that. And then instead of trying to go out and make friends, they're kind of like, well, I'll just stay home. And because I don't really know how to do it. Um, I mean, maybe we're underrating the levels of like social anxiety or something like that in the explanation um but that to to me it just seems like a, a, a coordination problem on a lot of fronts where maybe if you're not kind of forced into situations you don't end up you know putting yourself out there and, and making friends and I mean you know you, you and I like it are I think people who look at problems like that and we say okay well they can be solved but so many people are just not you know they're not really like they don't think like that. They're not as agentic. They just kind of wait for things to happen to them.
1: Right. Okay. okay. Maybe that's the most convincing explanation <laughs> that like people never, never really like made friends. That's the kind of like, that's the kind of wrong framing of it. Like in this case, the passive voice is actually correct. Mm. They kind of like became friends, you know, like th- there was very little agency involved, right? That, that this is always something that's very surprising to me. Uh, so, so on like, normal big five tests. I get almost like very close to 50% in terms of extroversion, introversion. Right. But to me, like talking to a stranger is sort of, there's like, there's like this fake social norm now that I just don't abide by at all of like, don't talk to strangers. Right. I I will just like talk to a random stranger. You, You know, I'm out. I'm, if, if I'm in, in public, you know, just just walking around, you know, killing time, I am, I, I'm already outside, you know, I'm already in a public area, why would I not talk to a stranger, right? That, that, that's my kind of approach to it. Um, I, I've talked about this on a previous episode, but, like, my, like, last year on, uh, on, on campus was the first year of reopening. Like, like post-COVID reopening. And so I just like went around and I just like talked to strangers. This is how I created my my university social fabric for my last year. I just talked to like 200, 300 strangers and and I found like the interesting ones. I just asked them questions until they said some, something interesting. And then I made a group chat with all of them. And, th- and that was my social fabric for the last year of university. Uh, and yeah, like th- this is just, you know, this is like not only is it a solvable problem, but it's like it's like a trivially solvable problem. <laughs> you, it, it's like it's not like it's not like you need to learn any skills. Like, I, I don't think I'm that social of a person. Like, it's not like I was, you know, it's not like I was giving like like Trump rallies. You know, I, I'm not a particularly charismatic person. I'm just like, hey, do you
0: want to talk about something?
1: You like just trying is, you know. 90 percent of the effort and people just don't try
0: yeah the so I have I have two stories like that and it's 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 one of the things like that's always fascinated me because I've um less so now but I used to be really really shy and you know had a hard time uh yeah talking to people or making friends and things like that and at a certain point I um uh, i I met this guy who was definitely like on the spectrum or something like that. And, uh, he told me,
1: is this a, is this a certain former podcast
0: guest? No, it's, this is not a, this is going <laughs> way back. Uh, <laughs> okay. there were, they were autistic people before, uh, you know, 2020, but, um, he, uh, but I, I met, I met this guy and he, uh, had, he was much older than me, but he had a lot of good advice about how to like make new friends and social engi- and kind of do social engineering, which, uh, I liked psychology. So I was like, okay, you know, follow his advice. So, so for example, uh, I, 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 started at a new school, um, when I was, I guess 15 or 16 and I would like bring candy like every day to school and just like offer people candy or offer people mints or things like that. Just like random, just like randomly, you know, just sit next to a person and be like, Hey, do you want some candy? I'd be like, sure. You know? And then after a while, like everybody knew who I was. People were like coming to me, ask me for candy that I started like to make friends that way. And then I, you know, suddenly I had friends. Um, when I was in university a couple of times actually, cause I, I, uh, had sort of different friend groups and things in university. But if I would start in a class, I would just, on the first day, I would like always try and talk to whoever I sat next to, always try and talk to a professor, like just, just do really, you know, basic things like that. And it worked really well. i made friends. Um, it's, it wasn't easy for me. Like I felt pretty cringe about it and I definitely was probably anxious and I probably, you know, didn't come across in the best way every time. But I, I kind of think you have to have that kind of like social engineering mindsets when you're yeah, trying to make friends. If you're not just, I mean, some people are just supernaturally gifted at it and very, very charismatic, but not everybody is. So if you're not, you know, you basically have to just kind of insert yourself into situations, just talk to people. And over time, eventually, you know, you become recognized as like one of them. Um, and it, it it can work for I mean all kinds of crazy things. I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a funny story. So, um, so my my grandfather he um when he I think he either dropped out of high school or he finished high school. I, I can't remember, but he wanted to work at the CBC. This is like a very very long time ago. And he oh man,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can tell because someone wanted to work at the CBC.
0: <laughs> yeah, and he like didn't you know he was good at art and stuff, but he didn't have particularly strong like he didn't have any credentials or you know. He wasn't famous or anything, uh, but he would just like hang out outside the CBC building like every day. And then when the execs would like leave uh, to go to lunch, he would just like follow them and join them. And eventually they kind of liked him and, you know, they let the, you know, they let him sit with them. And then eventually they gave him a job. So like, you know, you, you, you'd be surprised like how much you can do just by showing up, introducing yourself and like talking to people, inserting yourself into situations where you don't belong. Um, but to, to get there, you have to like be the first mover, right? You actually have to have some agency. And yeah, I definitely think that is like a huge problem for people where they, I, I don't know, they just don't want to try. They're afraid of failure or something like that. Um, and the, the thing that I find odd about it is like, cause I've, people will say, well, I'm anxious. And I'm like, I've, I'm a very, I've always been an anxious person. I understand that. But like, there's a, you can still do it even if you're anxious and you know, that's, I think hard for a lot of people to understand.
1: Yeah, like the, the... right. So, so there's multiple things I want to talk about there. Um, I think social anxiety a bit later, but right now, like, I, I don't even think it's agency, right? Like, like agency is something that I associate with like startups or like basically doing something that other people have not done before. But you can kind of, like, look at YouTube videos. Uh, you know, th- there's this, there's this uh, sub-arc, I don't know, scene in in uh, Oyasumi Punpun, where, where, like, the main character, like, sees some kind of, like, movie character and just, like, pretends to be that character in, like, every interaction, and then, like, ends up sleeping with a girl because of that. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> this is... When I say this is, like, a trivially solvable problem, I don't mean, like, trivial for, you know, someone... I don't mean trivial for, like, the median listener of this podcast. I mean, like, truly trivial for, like, 100 IQ or, or like, 90 IQ, like, human being. You know, just, like... And and you don't have to, like, speak eloquently either. I, I think, like, especially especially, like, back then, I didn't speak very well at all. You know, like, all you need to do is try, you don't need to do it well, you don't need to have a plan, you don't need to, you know, you just need to say any combination of, you know, remotely coherent words, and people will be friends with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, and maybe, maybe it's like you said earlier, like, maybe like making friends is actually very odd. And, you know, people just become friends, right? Uh, Like most people in their lives end up, being friends with the people they knew from, you know, their high school or their middle school or something like that. They make friends in university, but often they don't actually end up staying, you know, good friends, like while they're, in, you know, after university. Um, I mean, maybe it, maybe part of it is just the, you know, you're thrown into it. And that, if that's true, I think that would kind of align with my, you know, neoliberalism blah, explanation a bit because, Everything is now about choice. And maybe actually your best friends are not the ones you choose so much as they are the ones that you end up with. Now that's not to say that you can't go out and make new friends, but maybe the depth of those friendships is much thinner um, than you know other kinds of Well like the empirical
1: problem is that they don't, right? People are not going out and making new friends. It's true. Like this very idea like, okay, we can do we can do social anxiety now, right? Like this very idea of like. I mean to 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 go back to like using economics to get the opposite of the correct answer. You you can kind of do like the, the 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 cost benefit matrix, right? Of like, let's say let's say you know like, what what is what are the different scenarios of of you talking to someone. There's like there's, there's like the benefit, which is you know having a new friend and like the the, the wor- what's the worst case scenario? Like someone says no, or like someone says like you're a loser, get out of my face. You know, very few people would say that, but like that's the worst case scenario. And, and to me, like you know, if you if we were going by economics and we were going by you know like revealed preferences, I, I would say something like, you know, the revealed preferences that like. People would just rather be alone forever than to you know than to be forced to talk to someone. Hmm. and that's that's their choice and we should respect their choice
0: right so, so, so what's wrong with that framing? Um, well, it's it's an interesting one because that might be true. I mean I, 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 <laughs> I because I have you know built up inside of myself these sort of anti-anxiety like don't do what the anxiety says instincts like I get kind of annoyed and triggered when I see people, do things that kind of minimize like social anxiety or social effort or things like that. Like it, it bugs me. Um, like I, I get really annoyed at people who order like Uber Eats, like for something that's like you cross the street or, you know, and it's not, it's not because I care about the money aspect of it. You know, it's, it's because I'm like, you, you're literally so like afraid of like going and talking to a person who works at Domino's pizza or something like having that awkward. I mean, it's not even awkward moment, having that moment where, you pay them money and they give you the pizza that you're you're choosing to you know spend more money just so you don't have to have the interaction. I mean I'm you know people are afraid uh like people are afraid of talking or or, or interacting with the Uber Eats delivery person who comes to their door, leaves the food there. You know? Ding dong, like it's the doorbell. Oh my God, there's a person outside who's like giving me stuff. I better wait till they leave. Like there, are so many people of who I know personally, like this is the attitude they kind of have, and I I think a lot of that is social anxiety, but but also part of that is maybe if you give people the choice, like they will choose to be lonely, and you know that is that is their freedom, but I sort of think that is a bad direction to go in, freedom wise. Uh, there's there's got to be like. Because I think loneliness is one of those things that the, the longer you are lonely, the easier it becomes in the sense of like, the longer you spend time without other people, the more you kind of get used to it, you kind of wallow in the sadness, but then eventually it kind of like turns into numbness. And then you're sort of like, okay, I could live like this. I could never see another person again. You know, it's not that bad. Uh, everything is convenient. And, you know, it, it it's hard to, you know, scoop people out of that and point them back towards real people. Um, you know, real people are very complicated and they're annoying, and if you're an anxious person, you're definitely going to it's gonna be difficult I think to interact with them, especially if they're if you're not super used to their behaviors right because you want to be able to predict everything they're gonna do um but I think the current society is trending in a direction where you have to interact less and less and less with people uh even the interaction people are having you know with the uh, service workers or, or things like that, or people who are, you know, I mean, yeah, service workers basically is increasingly less and less. And so I don't know, I, people can manicure um, their their social world more than ever before. And people like you and I, I think, are trying to do that in a positive way. And We're trying to go out and meet more and more people. And a lot of people are taking that in the opposite direction. Um, so maybe it's, it's one of those things where there's going to be more extremes and the middle is going to get hollowed out or something uh but i I personally am very worried about that, and i uh yeah i don't know i mean i i think it I, like i think it's i think it's pretty bad for young people to grow up in a world where you don't really have to interact with anybody you don't want to and you don't have to say hi to anybody you don 't want to when you're out in public you don't have to talk to anybody like I think we're creating generations of people like that who then go out into the the world and then we're like you know why are they you know, not making friends or something like that.
1: Right, right. Like I don't know, maybe maybe that's just the bullet we should bite, right? Maybe the bullet we should bite is like maybe it's not that bad. Maybe this is like the least the least bad outcome. If if that makes sense, like Well, what what is the actual payoff of of, of getting people to interact in person? Right? Like what are we actually accomplishing? by doing that? Like maybe, maybe like the thing that's happening is we're changing the preference to no longer like, not like this, not like this social situation. But is there like evidence of that? Is there evidence of that actually happening? Right? Like if if we, yeah, this is something that could be pretty easily studied, right? If we take someone who is antisocial, and who has high
0: social anxiety, is there a kind of exposure therapy to that? Well, uh, to start, I think you can look at societies like uh, Japan, where I think they're a bit ahead of us on these issues. And I think you can look at that and say, like, that does not seem like a better society in terms of... I mean, there's... I can't remember what the- It doesn't? Like, some people really like Japan. Some people think it's a, <laughs> it is a better society. Uh, well, I'm, there are there are ways in which Japan is, is probably better. I'm sh- but I I think if you look at what is life like for people who are on the more anxious side, I mean... I think they have a whole word to describe somebody who's chosen to basically never leave their house or something like that. I I can't remember the exact word. Yes.
1: Yes. It's a Hikikomori. Hikikomori. Yes. Okay.
0: So when I, I view something like that as quite bad. And I, I think accepting that as opposed to trying to help that person is, I actually don't think that's compassionate. I don't think that's like, Oh, well it's just their preference. We should, you know, I, I, I think whatever level of anxiety you might have, it is something that can be improved, and I think your life will be better in the company of other real people instead of retreating into your own world um so I mean that's that's what I would say about that um, now in terms of you know you said well, maybe maybe it's kind of the best world so so or maybe you bite the bullet and so you have some people who can basically make more friends than ever before, right? So it's like, we've got the internet, right? So we can meet people in real life. We can meet people online. We can, um, you know, match those two up, which I I kind of agree is the best. I mean, it's amazing, right? I love it. I'm sure you love it too. Um, but I think the the flip side of that is we now have a whole kind of class of people who like they have very few real friends in part as well, actually, because, and this is maybe more interesting thing, In in, in part because they've, found people online who they feel like maybe respect them or respect their lives more than people in the real world Uh, and and maybe that's part of a a kind of broader trend towards the online world kind of you know eating the real world and so so like um like i don't don't really play video games but like i imagine if you're what's a big video game like fortnite like i imagine if you're like a really, really highly ranked in Fortnite or something like that, but you're like a loser in the real world, of course you're going to want to play Fortnite all the time. And you're the, the online friends from Fortnite who you, you know, talk to or whatever are going to, you're going to feel much more validation from those conversations than like in the real world where, you know, you're a loser and your parents are upset at you and you, you know, your friends have all gotten normal jobs and stuff. And, and I think, I think there, you could if you bite the bullet on that kind of thing, then you've got... You're basically sort of saying, like, you know, fake status economies in the virtual world are with, with virtual friends. I mean, they're real, but they're, you know, at least for now, you've got AI coming too. Like, you're basically saying that those should be just as legitimate and we should focus on... We should accept those just as much, or maybe not just, but we should accept them as, in some sense, legitimate compared to the real world, and I just... I would really be surprised if that is the way to make people, you know, in the long run happier or healthier. Um, yeah, I, 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 I have a very hard time imagining how that plays out uh, in a good sense.
1: Right. So, so you have, yeah, you have basically when when you say happier, like, like, how are you measuring that? Like, what what do you mean by that?
0: Okay. So I'm not, I'm not even this. So I, I could talk about that hedonically. But I, I think then somebody could counter argue like, well, you just don't know what it's like to be like the greatest Fortnite player. Right. And maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe they're right. Like maybe, I mean, I, I used to play Mario Kart a little bit and I got, you know, I did pretty well at, at some point and I, I, I felt amazing. I was like, oh my God, like I'm the number, you know, eighth ranked player in the world on this track or something like, you know, that's crazy. Um, so, so, so maybe there's a level of like, you know, online status that is equivalent or better than real world status for that person. And so it can be justified. Um, I I'm certainly in favor of a dual model where like you can have like status in one online world, but then you go out into the real world and you live a kind of normal life. I think that's like fine. Cause you, you're still in both, but I, I really worry about people who their entire life is online. And then in the real world, they're just a complete loser because uh, I, I mean, I don't think that, I don't think that can deliver the, the true kind of happiness that people want, which is maybe more of a long-term, you know, thing. Um, I don't know, does that... Right, so, so here, here's here's maybe a framing
1: of it that, that I think um, kind of tr- tries to square the circle, is that people people in the long run are made happy... Like, in friendships, people in the long run are made happy by kind of acknowledgement and respect and attention of other people. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the short run, they're seeking basically like entertainment, right? So, so, so like you, you go, you know, you, uh, you talk with the boys, you know, you go to the bar with the boys and in the short run, you know, they, they, they say like funny stuff. And in the long run, you know, you're all, you're all hanging out together, having a good time and you have good memories, right? Right. That, that, that's like the caricature of it. But nowadays, with the internet, you can both find you can find the conversation half of it pretty easily, right? You can find the entertainment half. You just go on YouTube, you go on Twitch, you know, it's right there. Mm. You know, like Twitch is an excellent example of this, right? People who are just uh, people who are just you know playing video games for you know hundreds of thousands of people uh, who are, who are watching them live, and they're not, and they're just you know hanging out. They're you know usually making jokes. Like this thing, this whole deal of like a parasocial relationship, right? That's exactly what this is. It, it's, it's, it's one half of the relationship without the other. And, and now like when people are, are talking about being lonely, they're, they're talking about like not getting the other half of the deal, right? Not getting, not getting the entertainment or sorry, or they are getting the entertainment, sorry, but they're not getting the, uh, they're not getting the acknowledgement. Yes.
0: Which, which, by the way, people who are lonely, even with friends, that's how they feel, right? So there are people who they'll be like, I have buddies, but like, I still feel lonely because I, I don't really feel like they care about me, right? Or they respect me. So that plays into what you're talking about, too.
1: Right, right. So So, so like, in economic terms, it's just... It's just playing out the fact that we have digital communications, right? Like like this is an inev- inevitable result of basically communication being cheap. Mm. You know, like if you had, still had to send letters to each other, you know, there I, I'm sure there were very few, I don't know, you can kind of see like novelists as sort of doing this, but there were very few, you know, like uh, letter salesmen. The letter salesmen were not, you know, uh or or even the novelists were not selling to that many people maybe like the greats in hindsight right but but at any given point in time you know you had very few novelists who were selling to kind of hundreds of thousands of people um in the in the kind of pre uh pre-television era
0: hmm.
1: well it seems like sorry uh,
0: no you sorry you finish your thought
1: yeah so so, so like we're once again in the situation where, in order to solve the problem, you either have to you have to restrict freedom, or yeah, that, that's basically it. You have to you have to restrict freedom.
0: Right. Well. So 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 there's a so there's a couple combinations, right? That I think most of them are fine, and there's one or two that are bad. So, if you are a person who. Let's just use a binary of, of real world versus online because like obviously lots of stuff crosses over now. But, you know, if you're successful in the real world and a loser or nobody cares about you online, you know, which is sort of like I think most people, then, the, you know, I'm, I'm defining success. I'm defining success here as like basic, you're able to live a basic life and you're, you know, you're okay. So, you know, in that situation, like I think that's fine. I think if you're successful in the in the real world and successful online, that's great power to you. Um, I think if you're, you know, only successful online, but you're not successful at all in the real world, as in like your real world life is terrible, but your online life is great. Uh, I just, I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's a good life. I've seen people like that. They do not seem happy. They do not seem healthy. Um, in the same way, like, like if you, if if I, if I, you know, called my friend and I'm like, Hey man, how's it going? It's like, Oh good. Like I just got a new, like AI girlfriend. Right. And I'm like, Oh, like how's, you know, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, like my girlfriend's an AI now. I would, I would, I would kind of be like, I, I don't think that's a good thing for you. Right. I, I think that's a, a problem. Now, if if instead they said, oh, well, I have a, a girlfriend, but it's it's all online. It's like this girl I know through Discord and she lives in, you know, another country, but like we're totally in love. Like that's a little bit better, but I still wouldn't think that's great. And um, uh, until until the digital world and the real world are, you know, super close together to the point where, you know, those kinds of things translate into real world relationships, you know, Extremely easily, I I think the person who is having a lot of success in the online world but nothing in the real world is just going to be unhappy because as a biological being they are not having you know their needs for uh, companionship or you know respect and, and stuff in in those sort of you know physical ways met in the real world. Uh, now I'm I'm, su- I'm sure there's going to be people who they say look i don't care about the real world i'm i'm 100% you know an abstract thinker kind of person and what happens online is my life my my body is just a bag of meat basically that moves my you know mind from place to place you can just you know put me in the pod you know put the vr on me like i'm ready to go and um i mean i'm sure there are people like that but i i don't think that's most people i think there are a lot of people who are in, you know, online status hierarchies or relationships or things like that, that uh, would probably be happier if they put the effort they're putting into that, into real world things, even if in the real world, their gains were more modest.
1: Right. Happier in the real world. If I don't know, like for the person, I mean, at this point, we're talking about a small uh, subset of people. But for the person who is successful online, is like a successful streamer or whatever. That person is getting a lot of acknowledgement, though, right? Like if anything, the problem might be the other other direction, right? There's too much pressure from that.
0: So, so, so this okay, so the streamer is like an interesting one. So um <clears throat> so so yes. Well, if it's somebody who's you know streaming video games or something like that, and so so I'm using the example here, and maybe we are talking about a small group, although I, I've I've known people like this in my life. I think a lot of people have. But but let's say there's a person who's like a, t- a Twitch streamer. They get a lot of acknowledgments online from what they do. They're very successful. But like in the real world, they have like no friends. And, you know, they don't have a girlfriend or a romantic partner or anything like that. And like they spend, you know, all their time inside just Twitch streaming. Um, I mean, I I don't think... I don't think that person is going to. How do I put it? I don't know. I, I I would say I would say to that person like I I I think you're probably going to be happier if you invested more in your physical body, whether that's like working out or exercising, or you know, or invested more in real world relationships, whether that's with your parents, your family, like a girlfriend, something like that. Um, you know, I, I I think those real things matter too, and in the long run, will make you happier uh, and if you were putting a hundred you know in one bin and zero in another I think that's like a problem um, I mean to, to, and, and uh, even here right we're using we're using the example of somebody who's extremely successful but I think more often than not it's it's somebody who is you know I mean there's 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 lots of um, young men who are foregoing you know going to school or getting a job and instead are playing like minecraft or are playing uh I don't know World of Warcraft or something like that. And maybe maybe they're pretty good at that, but like, you know, I just don't think that is, well, you know, I guess, I guess to your point, you could kind of make a, you could do a cost benefit, right? So you could say like, if you're the best at streaming, if you're raking in millions of dollars, then maybe it's worth it. But for the, the, average, the average person in that situation, most people in that situation, even I would just say it's probably, you're probably not going to be as fulfilled and live as good a life as if you focused more on your real life
1: okay so you mentioned something there uh that i think is very important which is that this is uh i think and i agree with you here that this is often uh uh something especially severe in men yeah so i have had this this is an ongoing uh disagreement that i've had with people uh many, many people, including you know former guests of the podcast, have suggested that uh, have suggested that norms are becoming more feminine and certainly this is true in some cases, I think, like workplace laws that's certainly true. but to me, in many ways, uh, norms have kind of online like digital native norms are sort of hyper hyper masculine mm. in a way, right. In that they're in that they're kind of disembodied in that they're sort of you know ev- everyone on the internet you know everyone on the internet is drawn to being a rationalist right is is pushed towards being more of a rationalist
0: <laughs> right um well it's um I'm not uh, unfortunately for listeners of the podcast and for you Brian I'm not a big anime fan um but I did recently uh see a movie called paprika but Uh, which we know the butt is coming which I really liked I I, um, it's uh, like a Japanese movie I think it's from 2006 or something and um, it's it's basically about this uh, it's basically about these scientists who figure out a way to enter people's dreams and uh, using technology and uh, as they go into the dreams, like you know, they find that uh, people in their dreams right are living out all kinds of fantasies and things that they can't really express in normal life. And um, you know, the main like the main character, right? Who's this like very kind of um, second wave feministy, uh Japanese female scientist who's very put together and she, you know, doesn't like men giving her attention stuff. like in this dream world is this like young schoolgirl, you know, attracting all kinds of like attention and you see, you know, one character is, you know, in the real world, he's straight, but in this dream world, he can be gay. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm going on because it's a really good movie. But, but I do think that the internet in some sense can, can function as that kind of dream world, like for normal life, right? So, you know, we always have that kind of dark side of things, that shadow. And I do believe the internet um, has been for a long time the place where that gets expressed. Now, it's obviously getting more and more censored and things like that. But but yeah, I would say that's, that's very true. If you look at the, you know, online kind of communities around um, people talking about political topics or scientific topics, like it's very male-dominated. But even the conversational style, I, I, I would still say is, despite intrusions, you know, more on the masculine side, like video game communities are, you know, extremely masculine still in terms of how people talk to each other and... Um, but yeah, I think I think the fact that that's happening is uh, is interesting because one could view it as, in some sense, the norm. But one could also view it as a sense of it's being repressed from these other areas of life. That you know, I mean, you could even look at the sort of e- come on, that that's not the history. That that's not the order. So so you're 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 saying the order is the other way around? Where
1: yeah, yeah. If anything, right? If anything, like the internet norms were like. So, so the internet norms have become more feminine as they've be, as there's like intrusion from the real world. I agree with mm-hmm. that, but like at the same time, the real world has not become more masculine, right? No,
0: I'm not. I'm not saying the real world has. I'm I'm, I'm saying I think you see more and more of that masculine um, energy being kind of pushed into pushed online or into the internet. I mean, I was right, but but if that's the case, right? Then then as the real world becomes
1: more feminine. Which I think it has in the last two decades, right? We, we would think the internet would become even more masculine, right? Right. Well, that but I don't think that's wait. Do, do you think that's the case? Um, do you think that the internet has become more masculine in the past like 10 20 years? Um, I
0: mean, hmm. Well, I to be to be honest, like I didn't, I was not even a very frequent online person until the last you know four or five years, so I probably shouldn't comment. But what I was go- what I was going to say, and and maybe this is just my ignorance, but you know I was thinking about stuff like uh, you know that e what is it EMJR site like the economics job rumors or something like that yeah right? yeah which is basically like becoming like that's like where all the talk quote unquote toxic masculinity right is is being you know pushed into, and I kind of think like you know that that to me is a good example of a a reservoir of okay you cannot talk about that stuff in real life so it gets pushed under the surface online. But I think what you're saying is that, no, it was just always like that. And uh, it's, not, it's nothing different. So my theory is not necessarily correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that kind of anonymity, detachment, like, uh, you know, I am very much a critic of Height's, of, of Jonathan Height's politics and his LLM takes. He has very bad LLM takes. However... <laughs> However, I think he is correct about kind of the difference between in-person and online norms. You know, like like you can see it all around you. People are much more kind of... People are much more agreeable in person. And and honestly, like, so much more feminine in person. Like, even, even like very right-wing people will just be so much more feminine and agreeable in person. I'm just like, man just be like the the internet autist who, who I knew you as. Okay. Like this is something that just is constantly happening. And, and yeah, height gives, uh, I'll I'll probably link the, the study or the list of studies that he, that he talks about in his book. um, Or, or maybe I'll just link the book. he, he talks about this and coddling of the American mind, Mm. uh, which he co-wrote with, um, who was like the, uh, I'm blanking Greg on Greg Lukianoff, very off. famous guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Greg Greg Lukianoff, uh, the fire guy. Um, yeah. So th- there is this. I, I do think there is this difference. Maybe it's the other way around, right? Maybe as people are forced to forced to spend more and more time on the internet on like default default male um, social norms, th- that's where that's where you get like the feminist counter reaction, right? The the push to like feminize real world spaces is kind of driven by the default masculine internet norms.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know enough to say, but I guess, I guess what I was, where I was coming from was, uh, certainly feeling like in, uh, like in my experience with academia, for example, like when I, I used to, before I got into university, I remember watching, you know, you'd see movies like Good Will Hunting and and, and things like that, which, um, I don't know why, but seems to have had a very big impact on my my worldview because uh, I was bringing up in conversation. But um, but in in that kind of like world uh, or in that kind of academia that they describe and that they portray, it's like very masculine. It's very combative. It's very much about like we're getting to the truth, right? It's, it's
1: right. It's like the internet. Yes, it's like <laughs>
0: it's like the internet, although in some ways more refined, right? And um, a bit you know more gentlemanly. But still, there's 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 something about that that's super appealing. Whereas, like when I was in university, like um, I just felt the opposite was going on. Like nobody wanted to debate anything. Nobody, uh, everybody just wanted to you know write down what the professor was saying, unless maybe they had some kind of like faux you know postmodern or or, you know faux feminist like objection to what was being said. They had to raise, but it, it was the exact opposite. And so I then see people like myself being driven from those spaces and then going online um but you know that so that that's my that's my view of it but i i i, I think you're probably right and that it was probably all like the online was probably you know always more masculine and maybe the just the difference is that as real life became more feminine you had people like myself who you know maybe 20 30 years ago i wouldn't have been like in a more moderate a more moderately gendered environment or something i would have been totally fine you know but people like me you know the the i don't know what what to call that the, the neoconservative of gender or something like that being you know pushed online uh, into a uh, a different uh, environment altogether um i don't know so that that's kind of where i was coming from with it
1: right right i mean to to seal that kind of view you can say yeah, to to, to steel men that kind of view, you can say that, like, the the founding culture of the internet, I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure if I actually believe this, but you can argue that, like, the founding culture of the internet is kind of driven by who was on it first, right, which were basically, like, autist engineers. Mm. Uh, and, and you can say, like, they were pushed online because they were, you know, like, norms became increasingly feminine. I don't know, like even if the norms were very masculine, I would still think the same group of people would be the first ones online.
0: <laughs> well, well, one, one way you can think about it is like the, 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 the level of masculinity on like the internet, let's say broadly, could be too masculine for some guys, right? So it could be that there are guys who are like, oh, like I'm a bit more sensitive than that. And so e- even this is too much for me, I would rather be you know, it's like, I would rather be in the academic kind of masculinity where like we joust with ideas, but nobody's, you know, calling me the N word and and stuff like that. And and then there's people who are like, don't care. They don't have strong emotions. They just, to them, they're just, you know, going back and forth. And so maybe kind of the, that that changes too, in terms of like, you have, you know, people of of differing levels of masculinity, I'm starting to sound like a gender studies person, but <laughs> differing levels of masculinity and, and femininity, right, can can be pushed or, or pulled by very strong like norms or, or practices in, in one place versus the other.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, like, what's the takeaway from there? Right, that, that, that like the internet is creating male feminists
0: from like men who can't handle the internet. Um, I'm not sure. I, I may, maybe. I, I guess I would just I, I'm not sure if it's male feminist, but I, I do like I do think there's a difference between the like a guy like, like a guy like Jonathan Haidt is a good example, right? So a guy like Jonathan Haidt probably does not enjoy the hyper masculine you know internet uh, right, Where people are lobbing you know names at each other and it's extremely, extremely disagreeable. Like he's still a disagreeable guy. But he wants something that's a little bit more nuanced, right and a little bit more there's a little bit more manners, there's a bit more structure, right so I, I, I kind of think it's it's maybe that kind of thing. so it's not necessarily you're creating male feminists or anything but um, it may be that that some you know super hyper masculine uh, norms can repulse certain people who if it were just a little bit different might be you know on that side with you and then can push them you know in, back into the real world or something. but then when that gets to, you know, much of a problem, they get pushed back at the online world. I mean, maybe that's a good way to view some of these kinds of figures like Hyatt or Jordan Peterson or those kinds of people as, you know, sort of the uh, in the middle getting pushed around.
1: Even Jordan Peterson, that's, I mean, yeah, he, he does say, you know, he, he does say he's much more agreeable. I don't know. He, he doesn't seem agreeable though.
0: Like I, I, I'm not really doubting
1: that like that's the result of his kind of like big five test.
0: But I think, I think agreeab- agreeableness is one thing. And, uh, you know, politeness or something like that is different, right? I mean, people, people can be very disagreeable, but still have expectations of decorum or manners or things like that. Right. Like an, almost like an honor aspect to it. And I think some people that's a, that's very important to them. I mean, Jordan Peterson clearly is is disagreeable. He's willing to argue with people, but he likes to be treated respectfully. And you can see actually in interviews, right? He gets very upset when people right, right. don't treat him respectfully or try and do gotchas and things like that, which is like part of, you know, normal online, um, you know, masculinist uh, discourse or something. So I, I... You're right, you're right. That's why he hates the anon. Yes. And so I think there's something there where... Agreeableness is one part of it, but another part of it is kind of like the the level of you know um, political incorrectness, the the level of aggression, and there's lots of there's lots of people who they they like, and I, you know there's lots of people who like being disagreeable, but they want it to be in a certain frame where it feels like it's part of a bigger thing. So so maybe a good way of putting it is like I so I I, I really like being disagreeable. I like arguing with people in real life, but I only really like to do it when I know me and this other person kind of both agreed to it. And we're kind of both like on the same page about what's happening. So I, I really enjoy a good argument. I really enjoy proving people wrong. But if I do it in a way where I think, oh, I really upset this person or something like that, like it makes, I I don't like it as much. It's just not as enjoyable for me. So I think there's lots of people like that where they want to argue, they want to disagree, but they want to do it within kind of a frame where there's kind of rules on both sides. The intention of it is acknowledged. And then there's other people who just don't care at all. Right. And they'll argue with anybody and they enjoy winning and they don't care about that. So I I would almost say it's, it's it's a difference in the level of, of structure frame. I don't know, rules, decorum around it. Um, but I do think that is something that, that matters. And you could sort of see how that might bounce people like in or out of certain circles.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm starting to, to to get like the hints of this new frame. I don't know. I've been, act- I've actually been thinking about this a lot in the past few weeks. Uh, you'll see another for my audience. You'll see another episode with Thaddeus Russell, where we talk about similar things from, from quite the different perspective. Actually, I, th- I think like Thaddeus Russell has like exactly the opposite take on you on almost all of these questions. Mm. <laughs> it's uh yeah. Like, like I, I I'm not sure if we mentioned him explicitly, but I think he definitely like endorses the ideas of Saz. Uh, is that how is, is that how he's pronounced? I still don't I know. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, anyways. The main... I think a lot of the conclusions when we look at generational trends in mental health Everything just points to the to the conclusion that like people hate it when you give it give them what they want, <laughs> um, or at least if you give them what they want easily. And and I do think like you, you have to go yeah the, the complete the the position that I disrespect is like the moderate position. Either you know you have to you have to take it to its natural conclusion, which is either you know. I, either it's all revealed preferences, people are getting what they want, and and you know we shouldn't get in the way of that. This is what they really want, and in the self reports, they're just lying to us. Or you know, in the, in the other direction, right? Uh, free, freedom is a curse to most people. Mo, mo, most people are made worse by additional freedom, at, at least at the current in the current day and age.
0: Well, I think, uh, I th- to to me. The the big problem is just that we're talking about so many different things under the banner of mental health, right? And so, one thing that I mm-hmm. think would improve the discourse, even around those things you just brought up, is like let's you know let's split mental health back into there's like people who are severely mentally ill, and then there's people who are just kind of unwell on some you know on some spectrum there. Uh, and the the reason I say that is because. I think the kind of, you know, Thomas Zazz critiques and things like that, if you apply them to people with severe mental illnesses are like just clearly wrong. Like there's it's it's so obviously wrong. And we now know, you know, from, I don't know, neurobiology and all this stuff. But like, if if you, if you find somebody with severe schizophrenia, and you're like, oh, this person's just faking, because that's literally like, that's what Thomas Szasz thought. You know, he's like, oh, these people are just malingering. They just want attention. So that's like, but i just think we know so much more now enough to say no but then we can look at you know a kid who is you know in high school and they're depressed or something like that and they you know they they have genuine feelings of sadness but they realize that if they come out and say they're depressed they're going to get a whole bunch of attention they're going to get special treatment they're going to probably get to spend you know less time in school they now have a new identity to show off to their friends i think we can look at that person and say even if their feelings of depression might be real and there might be a biological aspect to it, we can look at that person and say, in some sense they're, you know, they're not, I don't, I don't want to say they're not really depressed, but like framing that as depression is not helpful. And there's probably much better ways we could, you know, address that and and talk about that as a society. So um, yeah, I think, I think the problem really is just we have so many problems or so many ideas consumed under mental illness and with some people, we need to give them what they want. Or Sorry, with, with some people, we need to um, constrict their freedom. Uh, in other cases, you know, maybe we need to give them more freedom, right? Like maybe people who are depressed, uh, in some cases, maybe they're depressed because actually they're not getting to have, you know, a free enough childhood experience where they get to run around and play and do things like that, right? So that's like Jonathan Haidt's, uh, one of his new projects. Um but I, I guess I would just say the whole mental illness as this one kind of unified thing that is, you know, should be destigmatized in a uniform manner. I think increasingly just doesn't make sense. And I think people are starting to reject it.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. I think in terms of, yeah, in terms of the social trend, that's definitely true. In terms of, so so this is maybe my one last push to try to get you to adopt I don't know, I, I'm not sure if I believe this, right? But but this is, you know, this is the uh, very clearly identifiable counterpoint. Um, my my last push to uh, get you to accept the libertarian bitter pill
0: is... Okay, so, so have you heard of Derek Parfit? Uh, I've heard of him. Didn't he study free will? Yeah, uh... He he studied a bunch of things. He he's like he's like the EA
1: philosopher.
0: Oh, okay. Um
1: yeah, or or at least one of them. Uh he's he like a very old he he's since died, but uh he he was like I I don't think he like himself identified as an EA, but the EAs really love him. Um you know, it was either that or or like strong lines. We had to mention one of the two in this episode uh <laughs> before we finished. But he he has this very famous thought experiment that is something like, imagine, like, you are... you are about to go through, like, a very, very... like, imagine, like, two situations. In the first situation, you're uh, about to go through, like, a slightly painful surgery, let's say, like, getting a tooth removed. And in the second situation, you have just awoken from a surgery that's much much more painful uh and you know which one of these situations would you rather be in and and most people or like let's just ask the question right which one of these situations would you rather be in so slightly painful surgery but you have to slightly painful surgery that hasn't happened yet versus very painful surgery that's already happened and this is all i know
0: about this yeah. Okay, then the slightly painful surgery.
1: Oh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, why?
0: Because uh, if they're if the if the second surgery is extremely painful, then I'm assuming they're doing some, you know, painful things. Like I don't really know what that is. The slightly painful one is probably less damaging or something like that. So I'd go for that.
1: Oh, okay. I, I maybe have set up this this thought experiment wrong, but but imagine like your future will be the same after that. Um, maybe I did the setup wrong.
0: I so so you're, you're saying the outcomes afterwards are the same, but yeah, uh, you're like you're just perfectly healthy afterwards in both both cases. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I I think still the slightly painful one, but I mean, maybe maybe the maybe maybe the frame is weird, but yeah, I'm I'm still gonna go with the slightly painful one just because. The fact, the fact that I know it's it was extremely painful to me is, is is alarming, even if the outcome is the same at the end.
1: Right, right. So so Parfit makes the point uh this seemed intuitive to me at the time, uh that that most people would choose the would choose to be in the in the one where they woke up already from the from the more painful one. Mm-hmm. Right? That that this is something that's in the past. And and his point was that basically, like people are are kind of fixated with things that might happen to them or or that are happening to them. That it doesn't actually result in, uh, it it doesn't actually result in that person like minimizing the amount of pain in their life, right? Because if something can be kind of like put in the rearview mirror, they consider this as you know as as inconsequential. Mm -hmm. But. The thing is, you can apply the same thing to suicide. Right? This is, like... I, I, I'm not sure if I actually believe that suicide is justified, but this is one way that I kind of think of it in the context of my own life. That, like... You know, there there are probably points in time... Like, like people will, will point to, for example, people who oppose suicide will point to the fact that people become non-suicidal afterwards... And the point of like raising the the parfit thought experiment is that like that's not actually compatible, or like that's not necessi- That doesn't necessarily imply that the suicide would not have been the correct decision, because it might have been possible that you know you, you've just gone through something you know something worse than death, and now you're you're through it, right? So so you don't want to kill yourself anymore because you're through it. You're you're not you're not actually you know you're not actually experiencing that anymore. That that's like Parfit says, that's something that's in the past. That's something that no longer becomes a consideration. Whereas like if you, if you were in that position, right. Maybe the best thing to do would have been to, to, to actually kill yourself. Right. Mm. Yeah. So like th- that's the, that's the other explanation of, of like the contradiction between self-report and revealed preferences. Is that like, sure. Maybe people will like say they become happier, but that the negative experience actually just wasn't worth it. Right.
0: Right. The so the whole I think the whole topic is is pretty fascinating and like suicidal ethics. I've also thought about it a bit in the context of medically, you know, assisted. Um, right. Dying, yeah, that's definitely the subtext here. Right. And uh, so I think it's very complicated. I guess I should say that um, the the to your, to your point, you know, you, you you just made there. I think that's certainly one way of looking at it, right, where you could take a totally kind of libertarian Uh, approach to it. And, and also to some extent, right. The, well, well, yeah, you you can basically, you can basically say like the, the experience the person was having when they made the choice to do it, like is, you know, just as valid, if maybe not more valid than the experience after, I mean, people change their mind all the time, right. About things they've done and then failed. Right. It's pretty, it's actually pretty common to like do something, fail, and then justify to yourself or to other people. Well, like, I didn't really mean it. I wasn't really trying. Right. And, um, I guess, I don't know. I I think, I think on that particular issue, uh, if we're just talking about like, you know, acute, basically acute, like, you know, suicide and things like that. I mean, the, the, I, I guess, I guess I would just take a bigger picture view of that where first you kind of have to ask like, okay, so can somebody who is, so, so, so people often say like, okay, a person who is suicidal cannot consent to suicide or something like that. Right. Or a person who is depressed cannot consent to suicide. And I mean, I would kind of say like I think that's probably true in acute situations. Uh well, I mean, I'm I don't know if it's true, but I mean, if it's true, it's sort of I mean, what does that even mean really? But yeah, yeah. I, I mean like
1: the subtext of this entire conversation is that consent ethics is sort of consent ethics and its consequences have been a disaster for society.
0: <laughs> well, uh I think I think what i would I think I would say consent ethics and that kind of thing, as initially understood was people are you know the people who are consenting are rational and they're you know they're agentic, right? They have these other kind of qualities that I believe at the time in which those ideas were put forward were uh you know not thrown around lightly, right It was not even like they did not necessarily even think that everybody you know, possess those abilities, but just that there, you know, there were people, you know, many people who possess the ability to make good decisions for themselves. And therefore, those people should be able to, you know, decide. Um, I think when it comes to something like suicide, it becomes a question of, okay, you know, is the person is the person who's committing suicide, right? So like, you could say, are they making, are they just doing like a cost benefit analysis, right? So you could be like, you know, they're the, the pain of their life is not worth the, the pleasure of their, the future life they imagine, right? And, you know, in that situation, we could imagine cases where that might be true. So it could, you know, if a person is, they know the rest of their life, they're going to be forced to, you know, uh, be tortured or something like that, right? It can, it can make very rational sense to do that. But a lot of the time, I don't think that's necessarily like the motivation. And I'm not even sure it's accurate. I mean, a lot of the time... People might imagine that that's what their life will be like, but I don't, you know, think that's always true. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if in those acute situations, I, I I definitely don't think we should sort of treat that as a normal choice like any other, because I think their mental state at the time is probably, you know, not great. Now, on the other hand, I do think, and this is more controversial, but I, I, I do think it is possible for, people to, you know, having lived a long life of suffering and misery, uh, in which, you know, over some, you know, reasonable period, they've basically realized they're going to be unhappy every single day, or almost every single day or something. Uh, I do think it is, it is possible for people in that situation to make a kind of rational choice, assuming they've exhausted, you know, all treatment options or something. I do think it's possible for people like that to make a rational choice to commit suicide. Uh, th- that is rational in the economic sense of the word and in also in the more, I don't know, classical liberal sense of the word. As in like they've really, you know, tried, they've really given it everything they had, and this just seems like the best outcome. Now, part of the reason I don't necessarily like entertaining that idea um, is because then it kind of opens up, you know, this idea that like um, suicide can be justifiable. And and maybe even if that is in some sense ethically true or can be true under certain conditions, um, I mean maybe that's not a good idea to have out there or for like a government to endorse. So even though I initially was extremely enthusiastic about the you know made kind of stuff and I uh, especially for people with you know long term chronic physical illnesses and things like that, but. I am much more unsure how I you know, feel about it now towards people with mental illnesses, even if over a long term, you know, they've made that decision um, because on the one hand, I do think it is a decision somebody could rationally make, you know, so I'm imagining somebody who's like, let's say they're 50 years old, you know, they've struggled with a chronic illness all their life. If you look at, you know, people who struggle with chronic mental illnesses that are very, very extreme, their lives are not good. Uh, much of the time. I mean, I can imagine being in that position and making, you know, a choice to commit suicide if things were truly so bad. But at the same time, I think that has to be weighed against the public consequences of declaring that, you know, such a life is suicide worthy, basically. Uh, or then, you know, because I do think that is, I don't know, potentially a bad idea, potentially a slippery slope, potentially very, very hard to judge because... How do you judge somebody's mental illness, right? I mean, if you're a government bureaucrat or something, um, or a doctor, right?
1: Would this would this be better if it were not administered by the government? Like, let's say that, like, let's say that, like, some private company or like individual doctor uh, just offers this, right? Offers this as a as a
0: service in the U.S., right?
1: Right. It's not, you know, and, and the government just decides, you know, like we're we're not going to intervene with this,
0: right? So. I think the, I mean, the, 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 the real thorny issue here, I think, is that, um, I mean, so, so there, there are some people who will, they'll hear what you said, and they'll be like, well, you're basically just saying the government now has a license to kill people. And uh, I think there's also, uh, there's, there's some, uh, I think, theory cell kind of people who would say like, well, actually, you know, the, like, there's always ways the government kills people, right? There's like suicide by cop which is like how we do it now. This would just be, you know, doing it another way. I mean, I, 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 I don't really like, like that idea. Um, and I don't know. So I, I'm, I'm just not sure. Like, I, I think in some sense, it's pretty defeatist and, 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 and to some degree, it's pretty unromantic. I mean, suicide is obviously, you know, tragic and terrible and has, you know, affected many people's lives, you know, quite profoundly. I think, I think, a lot of people who have experienced you know a loved one commits suicide or something they they're torn because on the on these issues because on the one hand they're like this person was suffering so much you know uh, it would have been great for them to have a you know a way to get out but on the other hand for many of the people who commit suicide successfully you know they've had many many attempts before and i mean maybe they just wouldn't have even lived the same lives and had the same opportunities and so i'm I don't know. The the there's one part of me that that feels very strongly that somebody could rationally consent to suicide over over, you know, the course of their life or something like that. Um but there's another part of me that just feels like if we allow that, if we accept that, then um we're just doing something really quite morally wrong and almost uh, I don't know, against um I don't know, against nature, against God, something like that. Like I don't know.
1: I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. Yeah. Do, do do you think there is such a thing as, as committing a crime against God?
0: Yeah. I, I, I think people, whatever you believe or don't believe, I think people know what, you know, we mean by that, when we say that, I, I think people can, people can intuit that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's been interesting because it's like, the looking at you know how maid has rolled out in Canada and things like that and and again i mean i think i'm i'm in i'm broadly supportive of it. there have definitely been a lot of issues with it but if you look at like a lot of the doctors who do it i mean many of them seem to be pretty stone cold kind of like this is the right thing to do you know morality is on my side and based on the way the, the system is set up and things like that you basically have everybody, you know, funneling more and more towards those doctors as other people say, like, I won't do this. And, um, I don't know. I don't, I think they don't feel bad about what they're doing necessarily, but I do think, I do think like there, there must be some of them who, after they've done that, they just, you know, feel like terrible. Like, what have I done? I've killed a healthy person. And I'm sure right now, you know, as kind of a lot of the trans surgery stuff is kind of coming to the forefront, like I imagine there's many people who feel who are who participated in that, either, you know, helping their own children access that or performing those surgeries themselves who feel like they have committed some kind of crime against, you know, God or something like that. Or I I, I just I think and so, so to me, my 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 worry is that even if I can rationally see a case for say like assisted suicide for people with mental illnesses especially in certain you know long form cases i i can also really see how doing that and allowing that could be you know particularly evil even if even if rationally it it all makes sense which i mean i don't totally know how i square that circle but that's how i feel about it
1: yeah i think I mean the the easy way to square that circle is to accept that you have responsibilities other than that to yourself. Right. Mm. That that someone who commits suicide is indeed committing a crime against God.
0: Or I mean it's yeah, I mean I in some sense, you know, my my issue with it is 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 probably a, a due to my own, you know, different kind of views and hang-ups and, and it all not being properly synthesized or something. But it's like Cause it's like, I mean, there, there are many people where like, if they, if somebody commits suicide, they'll be like angry at that person. Right. They'll be like, how dare you? Like, how dare you do this? Like, it's terrible. Like, I mean, they used to be throw people in jail for committing suicide. And, you know, if they, like, if they didn't uh, survive uh, or I mean, sorry, if they did survive, they would end up uh, in prison and things like that. And so, I mean, that's, you know, certainly like one view of it. I, I don't have that view. I think if somebody's, you know, committing suicide or something like that's, very bad but i don't think we should like punish that person i think um you know but then at the same time if i take that kind of line of thinking you know too far into just kind of letting people have their do their own thing then yeah then you end up with okay well this person says this is what they want and you know how can we just not you know end their suffering i mean i'm i'm not uh i'm not sure i'm i don't know i'm still i'm still confused about it but i think to in in the for now, whatever philosophical justification I may or may not have, I would just say I, I don't think it's something that the governments should do, just because it is so. I mean, isn't this literally like what bioethicists are for? Like, I don't know. I'm not a bioethicist, but this this seems to me so like I, a, have, uh, I have the viral
1: tweet that's something like bioethics professors are predictably the least ethical people you could possibly <laughs> imagine, or like predictably more more unethical. Than than anything you could imagine, uh, yeah. I am very skeptical of uh, professional bioethicists, especially. Um, but, anyways, uh, do you have to be going?
0: Do you want to do the last question? Yeah, let's do let's do one more.
1: Okay, okay. So so this is always the last question of the show. Uh, everyone gets this question. What is uh, one thing in the world that needs more order, and one thing in the world that needs more chaos?
0: Ooh. Whew. Hmm. One thing that needs more order. One thing that needs more chaos. Hmm. Difficult. Difficult question. Um. I'm trying to think about this in. Okay. Well, on, let me write let me write this down cuz I want to get them in order. Okay. So um One thing that I think needs more order, based on our discussion here, I would say, is sort of human relationships and human affairs. Like, as as much as I like the idea of perfect freedom, perfect libertarianism, free to choose, that kind of thing, I think that we see that when it comes to human relationships, people are just not really uh, self-sorting into you know good friendships or good relationships i mean it seems genuinely like people need a push and uh and part of that i think is that it's a bit more order a bit more hierarchy in in all these areas of life um would be good i think you know friendships right are are great but one thing that's under discussed is like um mentor mentee relationships right mm-hmm. bring that back i think people Learn so much from mentors and mentees, and that is a very important part of life um I think in in dating for young people today as well, you know things are very, very disordered, it feels like, and uh, a lot of people I think would benefit from more kind of ordered, predictable, i don't know possibilities, whether that's like you you know go to a dance and you meet somebody there um or uh, somehow, on dating apps, they they figure out how to actually match people who have you know compatible preferences and want the same thing instead of it being this kind of um, you know weird race. But I, I I think yeah, I think a lot of people kind of feel like there's a bit of a lack of that, and that would be good. Um, and then in terms of chaos, I I would say that we could use a lot more chaos when it comes to. Um, some of our older institutions and the way they do, uh, you know, credentialing um, in particular, and and even just looking at psychology, uh, something I've talked about before, I think that uh, it's way too hard for people to become a clinical psychologist. It's harder to become like a clinical psychologist than it is to become like a lawyer. And yet, like we need, you know, way more clinical psychologists. Um, That being said, I don't even know if we need you know, clinical psychologists or if people with even less education could do it. Um, but in universities too, I mean in jobs, I think there is this huge, you know, degree bubble and it's a it's a big problem, not just in terms of the people who are, you know, experiencing it, like we talked about before, but for people who are smart, who are talented, who are trying to get in and who get stuck, uh, because they don't have, you know, the right uh piece of fake paper. So I'd say more order in human relationships and uh, more chaos in uh, credentialing uh, institutions and credentialing more broadly. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Jonah. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Great to be on.
1: That was my episode with Jonah Davids. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, just like I said at the beginning, please let a friend know either in person or online about the podcast. It would also be great to listen to Jonah's podcast. You can find the link below and to subscribe to his newsletter. You can also help uh, the show. I guess you can help either of our shows by giving a five-star review or by leaving a comment, guest recommendations. I really appreciate it. And many of the guests who you guys have commented on have I've either invited or have uh, actually come on the show. So uh, you can see that. And of course, if you want another great episode next
0: Monday then, of course, subscribe. Thanks for listening, and see you then.